This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear, to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot, and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Brendan and Nikki Quisenberry. Now, many of us understand the pressures put on marriages and family dynamics when we are serving in uniform. 
And Brendan and Nikki were incredibly courageous to come on this show and share their own personal experiences. So we discuss a host of topics, from Brendan's journey into the military, ultimately serving as a Green Beret, how they met, the physiological and psychological impact of war, skydiving, forgiveness, trust, their experiences on the Human Performance Project 7X adventure we all just returned from, and the tools they're offering first responders and military members through Transcend. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brendan and Nikki Quisenberry. Enjoy. Well, Brendan and Nikki, I want to start by saying, firstly, it's amazing to see you again. We're going to dive into the incredible round the world experience that we had together. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Awesome. James, uh, great to be here and we're we're super happy to unpack this. It's great to see you again. All right. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> We are uh, currently located in Clarkson, Michigan right now, which is also uh, in the wintertime. <laughs> so it, it really sucks up here at the moment. The uh, uh, winters really drag on up here. But uh, spring, summer, fall, Michigan is a beautiful place that's kind of underrated. A lot of people don't realize like how nice actually this area is if people come up and travel up here. So, but yep, in Clarkson, Michigan right now. That's how he sells you. And then you come visit. all right well obviously there's two of you so i want to kind of walk you through each of your life journeys so let's start with you nikki tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings sure so i was born in new york but i grew up in florida um i was there my whole life until pretty much meeting brendan and i have one older brother Uh, my parents stayed married, which was a big deal watching a lot of my friends have divorced parents and they're still married. I think I had a pretty normal small town childhood. Um, And it wasn't until getting older and talking to people who had different dynamics that I realized how lucky I am to have had them. Um, My parents, you know, they, they, I can't say anything bad (laughs) to be honest so Um, whereabouts in florida were you so sort of near clearwater in uh spring hill beautiful yeah gorgeous part of the state and then what about your parents as far as profession what were they doing um so my mom was a stay-at-home mom until she went back to get her degree in nursing in her 40s and my father was always a businessman. So he got his master's degree in business, um, came up from, you know, a difficult 
single mother raising him and um, he was getting on trains at seven years old, you know, and sort of doing that back then that was okay. (laughs) So he was always an inspiration to me how he's been a self-made, you know, businessman. And my mom, um, yeah, she went back to school in her forties, which always showed me that it's never too late to do anything for yourself. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, my wife went back to medical school. She's there right now, as we speak, 300 miles away from me in Miami. But <laughs> she went back at 40 as well, I think. So she'll be done in two years. But yeah, it's it's crazy. People think of 40 years old, and we obviously get into that physiologically later in this conversation. But if you think about a 100-year lifespan, which a lot of us dream about, <clears throat> both of my grandparents were basically lucky enough to hit that, then 40 is not even halfway. So to have that kind of, oh, you know, I'm over the hill mentality when you're 40 is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, um, with your dad growing up with a single, you know, with with his mother only, you can go one of two ways. I can either send you in a direction where you basically repeat the actions of, for example, the father, or it can send you the other way. You said your parents are still married today. What did you observe as far as him as the husband, even though he grew up with an absent, or you know, that uh, not a, a husband in the household that he grew up in specifically? Yeah, so his dad was in the military, and then he suffered from schizophrenia, and they're not sure if that's what had caused it. So that's why he wasn't around, um, because he had mental problems himself. And he did grow up with um, my grandma's Puerto Rican, they're Puerto Rican, so he was well taken care of by a lot of women. Um, And sort of in that community, you can really, um, I don't want to say glorify, but like the boy is a lot. So he had a lot of attention put on him. Um, and then seeing him persevere and make himself the man that he is, um, I think that he knew what he must have known what he wanted out of life. He knew when he met my mother that he wanted her. He asked her to marry her in three months, which she thought was crazy, but he must know what he wants. And I've only seen that man do anything possible to take care of his family and provide for his family, even to this day. Um, yeah, he says, if I want to go off and get a match- master's degree, then he would help fund that, which, <laughs> of course, not asking him to do. But he is just that type of person that family is everything to him. And I definitely learned that from him. Now, is he first generation American or how far back does the lineage go the Puerto Rican side? So they're really unsure of uh, his grandfather and where he came from. They actually found out doing one of those tests that they might not be Puerto Rican and they might be Spain Canary Island. Um, And his father, so my dad is half Puerto Rican or half Spanish and half English, and they don't know that side of the family. And then he, he grew up in New York with my grandma there's a lot of americans i know that swear up and down that they're mostly irish and then that 23 and me came out and they realized they're actually <laughs> mostly english so i'm gonna see a lot of people crying on uh, st patrick's day this year i think because of dna yeah, which <laughs> makes me wonder you know you have this perception of what you are based on the, you know your your lineage and your heritage and then you find out that hey maybe they're not even puerto rican but they have been their whole life and then you start thinking does it even matter yeah, you know, we are who we are. Yeah, always people. Oh, that's why I'm so angry. That's why I drink. Like, is it or is it your childhood? Actually, this <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All 
All right. Well, Brendan, going to you then. Same question. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. So born actually right here where we're currently uh, co-located right now. So Clarkson, Michigan, uh, grew up in this town, pretty quaint, uh, small town um, in Oakland County. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty nice area that we're in. I think Oakland County is like 19th or 20th richest county in the United States. So it's a, it's a really nice area. So when we say like, hey, you know, kind of live uh, just north of Detroit, you know, it's like always that perception of like uh, Detroit, you know, that you grew up near there. But it's like when you're 30, 40 minutes north of that area, it is it's a really nice area. And um no, Clarkson was a, a beautiful small town growing up. I mean, I had a, you know, to a degree, very wonder years, you know, like kind of childhood and, um, you know, in suburbia, Clarkson, Michigan here. And um, no, growing up was was awesome. I had uh, one older sister and, uh, and then my mom and dad were, my mom was had a few odd uh, jobs here and there. Most of her life growing up, or I mean, most of my time with her was she was a bus driver for the school district and everything. And then my dad went into law enforcement. So he was uh, military and I'm third generational military as well. So my grandfather served, my dad served, and and then me as well. Um, after he served, he was military police in the army. And then he got out and then became law enforcement. And um, he rose up pretty quick into the ranks of within Oakland County, all the way up to under sheriff, which is the, you know, second command of, you know, about 1400, uh, you know, deputies under him and all that. So, um, and then the rest of my family, I come from a big Irish family as well. So I got like, you know, six, you know, six other uncles, um, you know, and one, one aunt from big Irish family and a majority of them were all law enforcement, all cops. So it was in the same area. So I, I kind of had the, the Quisenberry name within Oakland County was, um, you know, kind of rose up at the ranks in the law enforcement community uh, pretty well. And, and for a positive way, I mean, the, I think the connections and most people that they met and everything was um, a lot of, a lot of good connections, a lot of hookups um, that might've, might've helped me out later on uh, in life when I was in high school, but uh, no, it was uh, it was great, great childhood, great growing up here. Have you done a 23 of me? No. Cause no what, what if you turn out to be English and that whole Irish lineage is just a, a myth? So, so interesting <laughs> enough. So when we talk about actually when we talk about my last name. So Quisenberry is an English name. My grandfather was, was just last name Richie. So he was 100% Irish. Um, both his parents were kind of killed when he was early on. The Quisenberry family, which was an English family, adopted him and brought him up. And so that's kind of an interesting aspect on on that. So it's a Quisenberry name <laughs> to, to what you're alluding to there, James. But um, but I, I'm tracking. Uh, I guess without doing the 23 and me so call it um a majority german uh irish from from my side beautiful well you talked about your dad being not only in law enforcement but a veteran which conflict was was he was he in combat at any time in his his uh time in the military no he um kind of during the the, the vietnam time frame but he wasn't over in vietnam uh you know luckily and um he was over in germany he was stationed in germany so he did uh he did some time on the berlin uh wall um he's got some pretty interesting stories with east and west germany at the time um before the the wall came down and all that so um no he's got some pretty pretty interesting stories of that time frame while he did uh about i think four years or so uh as an mp in europe um before he came back and then went straight into law enforcement so chris houth was one of the running coaches that came with us on 7x and he told a story about his his perception because he was a young man bouncing between america and germany and was was you know 
a child when the wall came down, basically. Um, so it mm-hmm. was uh, an interesting perspective through his eyes. What were the, some of the stories that your dad saw when that wall was still up? You know, it's funny. It, it, it hasn't been until within the last couple of years that we've kind of bounced stories off each other with my experiences in the military and his. He, he didn't really talk a whole lot about his stuff. And I guess in high school growing up before I went to the military, um, I guess I didn't ask too much of it. So his stories were, were pretty vague, but uh, that they, they was interesting. He actually was, his German was pretty decent at the time. So he was kind of a translator. So he was basically driving around a lot of the head generals um, and, and different people in the military all around Germany at the time. And basically kind of the, the, the chauffeur slash translator and would, and also knew the area pretty well. So he would take him to you know, show these, you know, interesting points where the Berlin Wall was at. And then literally he had some jokes here and there where every now and then, because the wall was right there, they literally were just watching each other from one tower to the other. And he would joke every now and then that he would throw over some of their their defect like fruits and, and everything over to the Russians and but they would actually appreciate it because they didn't get fed very well. So they would actually grab the bananas and fruit and eat it and all that. But um he didn't go into, I mean, if there was any kind of intense stories, he didn't really really share any of those with me per se. So you have a totally different lens now through the journey that you've been. When you look back at your childhood with your dad as a police officer, were there any signs that you recognize now of some of the, the, the trauma from the job he was doing being reflected to him as a parent? You know, I guess not on a, not on a, on a, a heavily symptom based, you know, doctors um, kind of analogy to it is, as I reflect back on my time, more thinking about childhood, because that's, I mean, he's been out and retired for, for decades now, but when I was growing up, he was, he was heavily invested in it. Now he was a, he was a workaholic, right? So he was very committed to his job and which also probably how he rose up so quickly. Cause he was pretty dedicated to that. Um, so it is a give take, right? Like I, I didn't get to see him as much. And also I didn't really hit on this note about five years old is actually when my parents divorced. So opposite of Nikki, my parents split when I was super young um, they they stayed closely like my mom and, and dad did have a, a, a pretty decent, um, you know, mutual relationship, um, you know, raising us and all that. So that wasn't really an issue um, as far as that aspect. But I think the the split at that time, you know, it, it did not sit well with me, you know, lo- losing him at that time. So as I kind of grew up and everything i think i always had a uh, a chip on my shoulder from from him from leaving and all that and then he's and then he was always gone too so i'd get every other weekend with him get some time with him and i think i always longed for that time to get with him but it was so few and far between and um so no he was heavily committed to work um very in, invested in that and so the times that i i would see him it was just yeah, just it was always just short and sweet, you know. Um, sometimes it would seem like just checking the box, you know. Where again, my interpretation of this, you know, he would probably say something different, but um, you know, it, it would just be real quick. Get get a lunch with him, get a dinner with him, stay the night with him for for one night at his house or something like that, and then I'm back to my mom's for another two two three weeks before I see him again, kind of thing. Um, 
so I guess reflecting back, man, that's a good question, James, because I don't, I don't, I don't think I really dove into that by any means. Or I or think as a it. father, he was proud of him. He just didn't show it or open up, which was common for men <laughs> at that age. My grandfather, everybody was the same way. We didn't really express things, their emotions. Yeah. No. Yeah. So it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I picked up on something. You did a podcast with um, Roll Call with Chappie, and uh, you talked about when you were, let me get this right, sophomore, I think you went to live with your dad. And then he said, oh, was, you know, was it a long way away? And he said, no, it was in the same town. So was your dad living in the same town the whole time, even when you were younger? Pretty close. Yeah. So if it wasn't Clarkson, it was the next town over. I mean, he was probably always within a 20, 30 minute drive of the, you know, probably five or six different locations that he would move to. And I think that was because different substations that he would transfer to um, as he was going on. But it was always relatively close, you know, within a, a easy drive to to meet up with him or, or to get time with him um, for sure. OK, so I'm going to psychoanalyze for a second. Because I had you know, a somewhat similar experience from an element of my my dad as well. When you look back and you were with your mother most of the time, and your dad wasn't geographically too far away, did you feel like um, he was still absent, and there, and there was almost like there was no real excuse for him not to be there as much? So you kind of were missing that male role model at that point. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it almost seemed like it would be worse because the fact that he is right right down the road and and but I didn't get to see him or, or spend that much time with him or anything. Now, he was always providing always, you know, we were never without or anything. And then my mom's job was, you know, kind of hit or miss with the school district. But uh, no, he always provided for us. We always had plenty of but missing, you know, a key chunk of that element of you know my dad being the, uh, a predominant role model in my life as i was growing up um especially with how close he was with me was not really there it was kind of non-existent yeah because i think whether it's someone who was adopted or fostered or you know is a, a, a missing parent you know they, they left and never came back which is my ex-wife's story her dad left when she was five and just started a brand new family never saw her again you're a piece of shit um but whatever <laughs> that is that 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 there's going to be that subconscious voice of why wasn't I good enough for that parent? And that can be a real kind of crack in the foundation as people progress through adulthood. Well, absolutely. And, and I think that that was the case with me. And again, that, that alludes back to what I was saying. I'm kind of the chip on my shoulder, which because of the absence of him, I think I anything that I set out to do like i i went out like i was 100 miles an hour and i'd go all out at it so any sports that i took on i you know was was pretty good at um everything and i think it was because of you know the absence of him not being there which just made me almost like self-seek the the idea of trying to prove my own manhood you know early on in my life by you know through competition through a lot of sports i did when i was young growing up i was always doing something you know three sports a year you know and um and super competitive and i think that helps me to a degree you know um kind of get to where i was at and and being competitive because that chip on my shoulder that he was just kind of not really there not being a role model for me that just made me drive even harder into you know working working harder at those other aspects of of competition and and 
Yeah. And and also trying to be the the so-called man for our family, even though my sister was older and, you know, my mom didn't really, she was kind of hit or miss with, you know, who she was dating at the time or whatnot. So like trying to step up that role into my, you know, early, you know, 10, 11, 12, you know, teen years as, as well was kind of interesting as well. Well, I want to get back to Nikki, but just one more question while we're on this track. A lot of people where there was some sort of absence early in their life, the ones that ended up being successful, there was a mentor that came. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people, sadly, that that mentor might have been a gangbanger or a drug dealer and that sent them down a very negative path. Maybe, you know, uh, Chappie was, was that victim of that circumstance early on. But a lot of people that found themselves in the military or other high-performing areas, there was a person, a male teacher, a female teacher, a coach, whatever it was, that saw who they were and, and gave them that kind of self-confidence and that turned a corner. You have your dad, he's a good man, he's providing, but as you said, he's somewhat absent. As you progress through your teen years, was, were there any people that you would think in your mind that almost kind of filled that spot and, and steered you the direction that you ended up going to? No, not really. Actually, I, and I've thought about that before. I've had that question asked to me, you know, like who really filled that role? I I, I didn't, I mean, I, to a degree, I mean, I watched my mom, you know, so she, she did the best she could with, with the both of us and all that. So she was inspirational on, on some key elements. And it's again, back to my dad, it's not that, you know, there was never any good wisdom guidance or anything that he didn't share with me uh, throughout that time. I think the, the heavily uh, lack of absence um, didn't help, but you know, there were still good conversations, uh, good times of traveling with him. He, uh, he always traveled with us a lot. So there were tidbits of times that I would get with him, but I don't, I would never say that I had a strong role model, um, honestly, growing up and I kind of shaped my own path through the lack thereof. Brilliant. All right. Well then Nikki, we, we talked about sports a second ago. What were you playing athletically when you were going through the school ages? Nothing. <laughs> I didn't play any sports. I tried out for basketball because of my height, but I wasn't, I didn't make it. I didn't have the drive. I actually just enjoyed school. I loved math. Um, and a couple of times I went into law. So I actually, oh man, I had to do jury duty the other day. And in middle school, I actually volunteered for that. And I would go and do jury duty to sit on trials. I don't know why. <laughs> I've been in this country for 20 years now, I guess technically an American for, I think it's five I think it's about five years and I'm going to knock on wood now. I haven't had jury duty yet, but I know it's coming. I probably now have said that it's probably going to be a mail a letter in the mail today, but I have yet to experience the joy that is jury duty up to this point. <laughs> yeah. Neither of my parents did any sports either. My father just, they just did really well in school. So what about other outlets? You enjoyed math. Was there art, music, anything else that your passion kind of was driven if it wasn't sports specifically? Oh, yeah, I really did like music and specifically poetry and writing um, things that are sort of kept to myself that where you can be yourself, um, kind of an introvert. So nothing that really was showy to the rest of the world. The introvert thing comes up over and over again. And I had a guest on who wrote a book called The Introvert's Edge and um in the conversation, his definition of an introvert is if you you can be fine in a crowd, but if you draw your energy from them being in an intimate setting or being alone, then you're an, an introvert. If you draw your energy from large crowds, then you're truly an extrovert. 
and you look at how many people need alcohol to socialize, I would argue that far more of us are actually introverted than we realize. That's exactly how I got into alcohol because I felt very uncomfortable around people. So, you know, it gives you that that little edge there. And then it's really interesting when you get into that with children and you say, for instance, you have a five-year-old extrovert who is energized by you, but you're an introverted parent and people think like you should just be fine because that's your child. But it's like this, it can be this exhausting dynamic and truly understanding what each child is. And and even like your spouse um, is, is very useful because you don't understand why your energy is being drawn yeah, I mean, the the party, one of our VIPs threw at the end of 7X. I know a lot of people went, I didn't. It was that, I, we'd just been on a plane for a full week together and it was amazing, but I needed a night in my room on my own just to kind of USA. So I uh, I dipped out of that for that very reason. <laughs> there was a couple times on the bus where I put my, I have earplugs and only Brendan knows and he laughs and I put the earplugs in when people were singing and stuff because I'm like, all right, I'm done. I love this, but... I got to check out. <laughs> <laughs> so what about career aspirations for you, Nikki? What were you dreaming of becoming in, in uh, high school age? And then what did that lead you to ultimately when you graduated? Originally, I wanted to get into criminal justice, into law. Um, and it changed a lot. And I did do I did take criminal justice in school, in high school, because I went to a tech school. Um, but then I was always interested in computers. So I would sit in my room and sort of just, you know, take my computer apart and reconstruct it or try to figure out how to, you know, hack the neighbor's computer, stuff like that. Um, you know, so this is 90s, 2000s before everything got very tech related nowadays. Um, I ended up actually going to college for fashion design because I would sew and make my own clothing. Um, so anything that's creative, creativity, but then um, typical college student with drinking and partying and not really feeling ambitious about it. I stopped doing that, went back to school for my associates. And that was around the time that I met Brendan and wanted to get my bachelor's in nutrition. And actually now is the time where I have the opportunity um, to do that and figuring that out. But it was kind of put on pause for several years because of everything that we had gone through. Um, so I just didn't care. And I didn't have the motivation or the push. So I have drive and it, I don't know where it comes from, but it's not the same as Brendan's drive. He knows what he wants. And when there's a target, he sets his eyes on that target and that's it. Done deal. And I've never been like that. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because you're from two very, very different households, you know, and obviously that that absence can send you in a negative path, but it can also be the driver, you know, and then with you, that very, very stable platform that you had has given you stability in life, but also you could almost argue without some of that... Um, that stress in some household dynamics that maybe you lose a bit of the spark because life is so comfortable and, and idyllic, which is what we all aspire for our homes to be like. But, you know, some of the highest performers do come from some pretty traumatic backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. And my parents would always push me to go in those directions. Um, my dad was definitely the, if you don't like it, then quit. And my mom was always the don't quit until you get another job. She was very logical about it, um, but I'm I'm more like my father. 
All right. Well, I want to get to where you guys met, but obviously there's a there's a large portion of Brendan's story in the military now. So I'm going to kind of shift back over to you. So walk me through. You know, you have a father in law enforcement. You have you know veterans in three generations now, or you would be the third. Walk me through your decision to enter the army, and then uh, you know we'll kind of explore your journey through there. <laughs> so that decision was made probably when I was like seven years old, watching Rambo: First Blood uh, for the first time. I love that documentary. Oh yeah, no, it's great. It's classic. <laughs> and um, I, ironically, uh, his speech at the end of that has now been where I am at now in life. It's insane at, at the tail end when you know the cops are pretty much surrounded him and he's about to give up. But like his speech that he uh, he talks about really resonates with me. And that wasn't the impact, obviously, as a kid, because I had no idea what he was talking about at the time. I just thought it was really cool that this guy was some Green Beret, so, you know, some badass and like all the cops and everyone didn't want to mess with him and whatnot. And it's just a great flick. You know, I loved um, watching that as a kid. So that was something like I knew you know, seven, eight years old that I was like, man, I want to go in the military and I don't even know what special forces are, but it just sounds so cool. And I want to be a part of it. So I, I always had a, a general, um, when I was young of, uh, idea of, I thought the army or the military would be so cool and looking at doing, um, as I continued to grow up, you know, I definitely got raised in our military history, our family, military history and everything. So, you know, became a little more patriotic, definitely more a sense of looking at it as, you know, hey, serving my time and doing doing a duty like like the rest, you know, my dad and my grandfather. So that was kind of in there as well. And then, you know, as a I can't remember, sophomore, junior in high school in the and when the towers, you know, collapsed. And then at that point in time, and I was still planning on going in even prior to that, but it was just an absolute no-brainer at that time of like, all right, we're I'm ready to go. Like, let me, let me get in, let me get at it. And um, you know, what what just happened with 9-11, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to this day thinking about um it really launched me into my military career and that decision. So there's so many interesting recruitment stories on this this podcast. I always say that the best one I've heard is Pat McNamara, former Delta guy. His dad actually sent him with a lawyer, which I think was amazing. So he got the very, very, you know, thing, the contract that he was wanting. Then you hear yeah. all the other ones, you know, the complete shit show where they promise them one thing, they get another, and they still manage to find them their way. Me. So so, so <laughs> tell me your story and then and kind of walk me through your to your first deployment. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my recruiter, who uh, I still remember his name, Sergeant Bose at this time, and he is a spitting image of Jim Carrey from like the Dumb and Dumber era time frame and like gap in the tooth and look just like him and everything. And so, um, you know, I would go to the recruiting station and, and do these little train ups and everything and and to try and like attempt to get a special forces contract or whatever that looked like. And at the time, you know, they they sell it just all get out, you know, let's go blow things up and jump out of planes and, and everything. And and who is that not going to really entice and, and sell? Of course it's going to work. And then you realize that, um, when you signed the contract, like that was not at all what they projected. I think he eventually had me in some just infantry unit. And then the best thing he was able to do was so-called air assault school with the 101st Airborne Division at that time. And uh, so it was, but I had no idea. I thought I was going in as a, as a special forces, you know, candidate or whatever. So, you know, definitely got uh, tricked <laughs> heavily. Uh, recruiters seem to be pretty good at that um, for sure. Um, they got to make their numbers, I guess. So, I ended up going in as 11 Bravo uh, to basic training on a with going to the 101st Airborne Division on an eight, um, 
air assault contract. And it wasn't until in basic training that they told me a little bit about where I was going. And I was like, man, that's not the projection that I wanted to do. Um, so it, you know, it, it at that point in time, the ball was already rolled out. And so I ended up just becoming 11 Bravo. Uh, eventually, I uh, did a really good on my PT test. So I got an airborne contract. So then that was at least a stepping stone in the right direction to go airborne. And so eventually graduated basic training, went to airborne school. And at that point in time, when I graduated airborne, you you go to wants and needs of the army where they're going to send you. But there's like three airborne units in like all of the military. Right. So you ended up going to the 82nd Airborne Division where, um, you know, immediately after that, I, I ripped out and and went straight over to Iraq, you know, within the the time frame of of going to prom to being in, you know, Baghdad in combat was within several just a few months. So question for you, and there's, there's, a, there's a reason I'm asking this. I don't know if we discussed this when we were on the trip or not. When you first did your basic training in an airborne school where you did your initial jumps, um, do, mm-hmm. when you look back, was there an element of fear when you came straight out of school, even though you've been a sports person, into the kind of more extreme elements of, of uh, combat training and uh, parachuting? No, no. And, and and the more I look at it, like I just, again, I, I don't know what it is, what, what took me like, I just always had that chip on my shoulder. I was just ready to, the, again, the town and community that I grew up on uh, here is, it's a beautiful area. So we obviously came back to it, but I was ready to get out, go start my own thing in my life. When I turned 18, was super motivated to be in the military. I remember going through basic training and airborne school and exactly what you're talking about, James, is what I saw a lot of other people start to have those fears. A lot of them would start to quit. They would fake injuries, um, try and they're just like, what am I doing here? And that the structure that, you know, the discipline, the organization and all that, all of it was, you know, so different to their lifestyles. And it was super different to mine too, honestly. But I just fed, I fed off watching other people <laughs> to like almost suck and suffer through it as I was trying to, um, you know, eventually be able to, pass this stuff and, and continue to prove myself to, to some degree. So I, I always enjoyed it. I always look forward to what the next thing was. What is, you know, what's air, airborne school. We're going to jump out of planes, sign me up. Let's do it. You know, ranger school after that, like, let's go with special forces. Absolutely. Like I just try to keep climbing that ladder. I was always motivated to, to always do that stuff. Nikki's shaking her head. I mean, nodding her head. You got anything to add to that? He wanted to climb the ladder and go to Delta after that. And I had to say no, because it was climbing the ladder because so he might not like this, but Brennan has been trying to prove himself since he was a boy and his father was always around at those games and showed up for, you know, him going in the military. I think though, he's looking for that warmth that comes from a parent sometimes of like you good job, buddy, you're doing amazing in life. And I think it's sad, but it's not, he he's he doesn't feel it and that's why he keeps going thoughts i don't know, <laughs> I don't know i'm just intrigued by this though. this is why i was talking about you guys sitting next to each other so how would you respond to that i mean that's an accurate statement for sure i i don't know if my dad i know i know he's incredibly proud of me you know and everything like that but there's a a yeah I think she's right. I don't think I've really ever had to, we've never, we've never broken that barrier between me and him on that realm, even to this day. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I would maybe at one day I'd like to. I, I should probably be the bigger man and, and and probably try to approach that ground and all that, and at least attempt to make you know good with you know all of our time together and and try and break through that barrier that's always kind of been between us. Um, but yeah, no, I, I haven't done that yet, and that's always why I'm just always out there constantly trying to I think prove myself you know better than him per se, and it's not even so much what can, is it, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's just always trying to prove myself to him. And, and I, he would sit here probably right now and tell you like, uh, you know, he doesn't need to prove anything to me. He's super proud of me, but we've never had, we've never broken those barriers on that level. And, and so then I'm just always out there looking for the next, the next thing. I think you should absolutely have that conversation. The reason being his generation, especially, and then, you know, ours, um, they were raised on uh, what I call the Rambo bullshit. Like the men don't cry. John Wayne, you know, John Wayne never served. And that seemed, I don't think he was even that good of a person from what I understand if you actually delve a little bit deeper. But regardless, these, these people, these, these two-dimensional fictional characters that people hold as masculinity. And it's such bullshit. And, you know, when you actually are vulnerable with each other and maybe, you know, your whole thing was was your mental health journey, you know, opening with that and him being allowed to say okay this is actually what i've been going through and this is the guilt i felt i felt as a parent and i traded my time with my family for my career and you know maybe it wasn't as fulfilling as i thought it was going to be um you know there's all these things i think it's that vulnerability that brings everyone together and so many people especially in the mental health conversation we look at everyone else they're like they're all they're all fine why am i such a pussy why am i struggling you know, why am I the only one? And then they're all actually thinking the same things, which is so good with this mask. So you've got a kind of multi-generational mask going on, I would assume. Yeah, no. And, and to caveat on that, like that's we're talking about, you know, John Wayne, you know, so-called Sylvester Stallone, some some pretty old timers in their generation and kind of how they paved the way of that during that time frame. But, you know, that is still going on now, James. And there's still a lot of people in my community within Green Berets, Navy SEALs, that do still try to hold that, you know, Hey, we never, we never need to talk about it. Let's just bury our problems and, and everything. And, you know, kind of wall buff out or, or whatnot. And it, and it, it doesn't, it won't, it's going to catch up to everyone at some point in time. And it's just a matter of time. And so we're in some interesting grounds right now. I think the mental health industry and everything is starting to kind of break a little bit of those barriers. I know the chain of command um, up and down the chain is is trying to be a little more receptive and they're a little bit more like, hey, these are the resources, guys, try and go get help. But there's still a stigmatism in our culture that's like, there's a lot of guys that still don't want to seek that. There's a lot of things that people don't want to possibly dive into in fear of some sort of repercussions or them getting sidelined or or losing their, their t- um, spot on a team or something like that because of seeking mental health. And, you know, I, I want to say with a 95% certainty, you know, that's, that's not going to happen, get the help you need, and then get back on the team. If anything, that's going to make you a better team guy, but that's still kind of it's hit or miss in our community right now. So I, I definitely encourage guys just like physical health, everyone's exercising, you know, and, and being physically fit. It's like, you need to have mental tune-ups as well and get checked and be able to talk about some of that stuff as well. Well, I always, it's not just, I'm sorry, Nikki, carry on, please. Oh, I was going to say, I know he says men, and that's the community mostly, but it's not just the men either. It's women too, because I grew up around brothers and or a brother and then a lot of his friends. And 
to be the strong girl instead of the pretty girl and to kind of keep that stoic nature and never let them see you sweat. I can just imagine what it's like for women in the military. They don't want to be emotional. They don't even they don't want to come forward and talk about that stuff because it's then they're just they're going to be stigmatized even further as being emotional and being a woman. So it's it's hard for men, but it's also hard for women in that community too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the perfect examples that I give people is if you watch Band of Brothers in 101st, the real men that speak at the beginning at the end, they're in tears most of the time. And these are some of the most heroic real warriors that the US at least has ever seen in recorded history, I would argue. And that's what masculinity is. You have to be in that flow state when you're running towards gunfire, running to a burning building. But it's kindness and compassion that took you into the uniform in the first place. If you really reverse engineer it, you want the pain to stop. You want to protect. You want to, you know, to mm -hmm. to, to be that, that sheepdog in your community. But then you've got to give that same compassion to yourself to process what you just saw or what you just had to do. And so if you want a real example of masculinity, and like you said, well, the female version of, watch Band of Brothers. Because if you think that you're more heroic than what those men did in World War II, then I say bullshit. And if they can be courageous and vulnerable thinking about things that happened 60 years prior, then your mythological ideals that men don't cry, rub some dirt, and it don't be a pussy are completely fictional. And you need to really take a step back and look in the mirror again. Absolutely. No, 100% agree on that, James. And then with the pursuing the Delta, I just want to make sure we hit this before we move on. One thing I found <laughs> as well is if you look at um, the, the kind of the childhoods of a lot of us in uniform, there's, the, there's even in the psychology space, there's the thing called ACEs, which is Acute Childhood Experiences score. Um, a lot of us have score very, very highly. And it makes sense. You know, you, you want to be the protector, like I just said. And if addressed, that trauma can become a strength. You can become more resilient, hands down. But if unaddressed, it becomes, you know, a, a more fractured foundation. And then you add to the fact that if you're constantly pursuing that next level of adrenaline, of stress, then is that actually a career path? Or are you trying to keep what's buried buried? The busier you are, the more dangerous the environment that you're in the less time you have to actually dwell on the very, very thing that maybe you should have addressed years ago. So that's another kind of compounding element, which is why I think people hit a wall in their uniform professions where they just cannot suppress that any longer. It's definitely what it was for us. Um, I know he always wanted to do special forces when we met and that worried me, you know, just like his recruiter, though, he kind of sold me on it. It was like, I might do this, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, he definitely did. <laughs> but then we were having issues and it became, I'm going to do Delta. I'm going to see what I'm made of. I'm going to push myself further. And at that point, you could, I could see this is just him climbing the ladder and him pushing himself. When does it stop? And that was not an easy conversation for us to stop him from going further. Yeah. And I think at that point in time too, when I was looking at making that jump um, to going all out and possibly trying out for, for Delta as well, I was also a lot of things within my world was collapsing on, you know, a mental health standpoint. I know me and Nikki were, were struggling in a lot of areas. So there was a lot of things that was already most likely going to set me up for failure to even succeed in, in going for a unit like that. 
And, um, and, but was obviously again, like in hindsight now, looking back at it was for the best of where that trajectory took me because I did mentally still want to go, go try out, you know, just go give it a shot and everything. And, um, so there was that, that portion of it to see if I had what it takes, but I think at, at that point in time now, like it's a, yeah, I wouldn't have, I would have made it because the place where I was at and that state of mind and and where we were at with our, uh, with our marriage and our health and well being as well, like would, would not have been the case. And it only would have dug me into a further hole and, and, and made it worse for, for me and her. So uh, I was glad she kind of eventually, you know, put a hard line on me at that point in time to kind of stop me from really going and then to kind of take a step back and, and, you know, kind of reevaluating our marriage, my, my lifetime goals, and then, and realizing and being my lifetime goals is being the best dad and best husband that I can be, but I was not doing that at all. And so that kind of really allowed me to take a step back and reflect and try and start going the routes of, of achieving that ultimate goal, not Delta, but being a, being an actual good husband, a good father, you know, a good mentor, good positive leader for my my family and my kids and you would have made delta because you'll make anything that you want to do that's who you are you don't have to prove yourself to me i know that yeah it is a paradox though because as a as a you know a responder or a military member you want to achieve the highest level that you can but like you said, at what cost? Is there a point of diminishing return where is it more now about the ego? And I don't mean that in a negative way, but, you know, the 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 uh, the way you view yourself, your identity versus, you know, as you said with your dad, yes, he achieved this this pinnacle in law enforcement, but at what cost? Absolutely. And I have buddies over there. I'm not going to say who the names are, but I've had buddies over there that made it, you know, and, and it cost them dearly, you know, and who knows what it would have been like if their decision was slightly different with their, their family or, or friends or uh, kids as well. Um, so it's been interesting to kind of dabble up on both sides of the fence with that conversation and with people that I have over there as, as friends and where they're at and what that's done for them in their life. Um, you know, some positive, but a lot of negatives as well. Yeah. On the other side of that, I was working um, as an executive in an executive position and they actually told me knowing everything going on that if I chose this over my husband then I could be a fortune 500 CEO and on the path for that so it's definitely choice <laughs> that's an interesting parallel very interesting so what I want to just throw a two-sided question at you Brendan quickly on the military side and then I want to get into where you guys met and we'll kind of unpack that journey um, but it's an important perspective, and the reason I ask this is we get a very polarized view of war through our media in the States. Either kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're all a bunch of baby killers. And in the middle are the, I would argue, children that we send overseas to fight for our country. Um, so the first part of the the, um, the question, obviously you witnessed the tower fall, towers fall. Your, your first place you found yourself was actually in Iraq. So regardless of the politics that sent you to the very, you know, maybe it was your first combat zone, maybe it was somewhere later, that sent you into a combat zone. Was there a moment where you witnessed perhaps atrocities where you realized, regardless of the politics, there are some horrific people that need to be taken care of? Yeah, I mean, in terms of you know, the, the, the bad guys and, and all that after nine 11 happened, how fresh that all was. I mean, getting over there, you know, and 
and and rocking and rolling with uh with the mission set was you know kind of that was just the ideology but it's not so much their brainwashing us we all saw it on the on the news so we kind of had a good idea of what we were fighting for early on per se until you know you get over the years and you kind of unpack that and you're like why why are we here again but you know it was uh early on yeah we we got after it right away and, and starting to go after bad guys and and all these terrorist networks that were forming up and and then you know er, with Iraq you had Saddam and and then a lot of oppressed you know people that were over there under his regime for for decades and all that so you try to you know, think in your head that you're, you're doing this for a greater good. And then, you know, all the way to eventually, you know, taking him out, uh, to some degrees. And then you, you create all these other little factions of, of degrees of many other terrorist organizations that are possibly even worse than how Saddam was just running things. Right. And so you keep eliminating these bad guys, but they just keep springing up and you're like, at what cost, where are we going with this? What's going on? Um, on the flip side to that question, I know there was, policies and and procedures happening at certain times when what really hit me was at at sometimes you know there was a there was a time frame when you know we had a uh a period of um what do you call it a curfew right so in iraq you know there was a curfew right and people running around on the streets we had all these pamphlets we had loudspeakers blasting it everything like that you know hey stay in your house if you come out outside of this time frame you know you're you're considered a terrorist right and so there's no doubt probably missions and operations and things happening at that point in time when there could have been terrorists running around in those and they would get eliminated if they came across you know our positions checkpoints whatever but to think that is there possibly civilians, you know, a dad trying to run from one house to another to get to his kid and and something and 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 maybe he never got the memo of like, hey, there's a curfew out right now, you know, and and could he have possibly been killed? Yeah, I know that stuff probably happened, right? So there's it's a give take on the uh you know kind of that realm of you know the here and the why and everything and to kind of seeing those things unfold kind of hits you especially as an you know an 18 19 year old kid as you're seeing that um you my my first you know handful of uh um missions that we were doing it's funny how you get to the swing of things with your platoon right so just an infantry platoon hitting hitting uh you know buildings and sections of you know baghdad or, or different parts of town right and you're going from building to building clearing and and you know taking out bad guys and and doing good things and you have that sense of invisibility you know um invincibility and you're just you're just running a gun and you just and it's a high i mean it's a crazy adrenaline of you know feeling good and um and there's no doubt that you kind of like doing that. But what's funny is, and not funny, I mean, what is ironic is that the moment, you know, next thing you know, your buddy, you know, gets his leg blown off or whatever, how how hard that hits you in the aspect of like, oh, wow, this is like a real deal. And now you're throwing a, a tourniquet on his legs and you feel the warmth of his blood and, and all that. And, you know, just trying to save him as you see his leg just five feet away and everything's still kind of intact with that as well. And, and it, it's, it's crazy to, you know, the parallels of running and gunning and doing good things to then the hard reset where it sets back into reality of like, yeah, I mean, these bullets go both ways and, and the reality set in with, um, with, with doing missions like that. And so again, all at, you know, I was at prom probably, you know, six months prior that to running around the city as a punk ass kid in, in Baghdad and, and, and you have to grow up and mature really fast.
Yeah, well, I think that's such an important um, perspective, and thank you for sharing that. One, there's another part to it that'll be, I think, you know, the the polar opposite of that conversation. But before we do, is understanding what we're sending our kids off to do. You know, as as someone said on there somewhat recently, remember some people's children were beheaded on national television in some of these countries. That was someone's child who, as you said, had graduated one year, two years prior to that happening. So we have a responsibility as a nation to hold people accountable when they send our children to war. Is there a time where we have to? I would argue World War II is a perfect example of that. Yes, there's times where we all have to roll up our sleeves, be the front in line, front of the line, and go do what needs to be done. But the moment we leave one country and all of a sudden we're poking a bear in another country now, and there's, there's, you know, you have to question the checks and balances. Well, there's a lot of com- companies making a fuckload of money every time we go to war where is that oversight? How do we, you know, we we go and support them with everything we got when it needs to happen so that we can hit them hard and fast? But how, where are the reins? Where are we pulling back on people that are itching to send our kids off to war when maybe it just isn't justified and we're going to have all these coffins coming back covered in national flags? So it's a very important conversation to hear, not only from what did our men and women do when they were wearing uniform, but also as anyone who didn't see that and do that, how can we make sure that we avoid war at all costs unless it's absolutely necessary? I think a lot of civilians, and this is just my experience, they don't know any better and it gets desensitized because they say, well, they signed up for that. They say they the same about up. firefighters when we die. Yeah. Yeah. You volunteered for it. You signed up for it. You know. Well, that's like saying someone signed up for a marriage that went bad and that's their fault because they got married. I mean, they did sign up to do the work, but it doesn't mean that the mental problems or sending them off to die is the answer. Yeah, well, we know. I mean, we know that happens, right? We know Congress, there's there's definitely things in it for them, you know, and and, and when they make those decisions and why they make those decisions. Uh, As I knowing what I know now, two decades later, you know, a lot of the things that we did with Afghanistan early on, right, was to me seems pretty pure. I mean, with um, bin Laden and and him, you know, staying over in Afghanistan, getting harbored by, you know, Al-Qaeda and terrorist networks over there was was pretty interesting. So we launched that mission. We went out to to do what we had to do. And um, and again, you, you go into, you know, like 12 strong and, and a lot of the ODAs and, and JSOC and certain elements of the CIA. I mean, we, we took down the country in, you know, almost 90 days. Like it was insane when it when you let uh, special operations guys do what they need to do and how effective we are. It is crazy how much uh, work um, that we actually show and, and, and are able to actually get done when you let us do what we're trained to do. Um, but yeah, you start getting convoluted into like, okay, where did Iraq come from? You start to wonder like, okay, well, who was our president at the time? you know, Bush Jr. was, was there a little remnants of like, oh, you know, Bush Sr. never finished that job early on. So was there, was there some of that growing up in his culture as a kid, you know, and, and then let's, let's make a, make a move into Iraq and start doing multiple wars on multiple fronts. Um, Yeah. Those are some very, very loaded political questions that, you know, there's a, that only, only continue to ask more questions of, of why, you know, what, why do we go there? And, um, at what point are people more valuable than war? Is that yeah. the question? Yeah. And 
somewhere in there. I don't know if you're going to have this question already, you know, loaded up later on. It's, you know, should, should we have been in Afghanistan for that long? Should we have pulled out when we did kind of thing? Um, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I were the U S military is designed to fight and win the nation's wars, right? We're not designed to, to sustain countries for decades on end. We're not. Like, so we should have pulled out early on at some point, um, definitely around the, uh, probably close to after we got bin Laden, in my opinion, and, and shortly thereafter, right? Because that was the mission we set out on. Um, but on the flip side, too, you know, we did stay there for 20 years of warfare. The, uh, yeah, those people we had really good relationships with a lot of the Afghan people and everything. So they're, they got to experience a sense of freedom for at least that period of time, because now it's back under Taliban control and who knows how that's going for them now, you know, probably not as good as, is when we were there trying to provide as much as we could. Right. And so it's, it, but it's a definitely a give take on where we are as the, the so-called trying to be the world's police and how long we stay and help uh, other countries out as opposed to like eventually regrouping, resetting and taking care of our own country needs as well, you know, because there's a lot of things internally that we need to kind of fix and reset and restructure um, as well. So very, it's, a, it's a very loaded question on that on that aspect, James. Yeah, no, but it's an important one because the only answer is yeah. from the voices of the people that actually stood in those countries. So that kind of leads me in a good segue to the other side of that question. We talked about atrocities. Another thing that's not reported is the kindness and compassion during war. So you you served obviously a regular army as, as a ranger and ultimately in special forces. What are some of the the most memorable moments of kindness and compassion amidst some of these battlegrounds that you served in? Because I think one of the biggest tar with the same brush things that we do in the States again is, oh, we're at war with Iraq, we're at war with Afghanistan. Well, no, there's terrorists in those countries that are terrorizing their own people, and we are there to, to seek those people out. And as you said, and then we ally with some of these incredibly courageous men and women of that nation as well. So what were some of the positive things that you saw during your deployments? Yeah, I can easily reflect back on, especially in Afghanistan. There was quite a few different regions that we operated in. There was quite a few um, uh, villages and schools, you know, that we had eventually set up. So we would go, we would have uh, basically shuras, you know, and meet with the village elders and have these meetings um, on how to improve infrastructure, you know, anything from kind of the running water to electricity to getting schools and educations. And then we would ship in supplies um, as infantry units. So we would drive back and forth and kind of divvy out some of this stuff. Um, so that was pretty cool to be able to like stop at the village. All the kids come running up to you. They always love pens, right? Like Mr. Mr. Pen, you know, and you'd be divvying out a whole bunch of pens and, and paper and, and school books and stuff like that. So there was uh, some pretty cool uh, times for sure that I can reflect back on and, and just seeing the, the, the kind of positive change because and in fact some of those people i mean that was almost these 15 17 years ago for me when the first time i was in afghanistan and that was you know i mean think about those kids were five seven ten years old so now they're you know in their manhood of in their mid-20s now the next generation of people that uh maybe he's a taliban member now maybe he's trying to to fight the taliban maybe he's trying to just you know he's a regular 
so-called citizen trying to figure it out in his life where he wants to be. But there is that period of time for sure that they got to be able to get some good schooling, education, um, a certain appreciation of seeing what we could do, you know, and, and the good that we were doing. And that was pretty cool to be a part of some of that. Beautiful. Well, Nikki, I want to bring you back in then. So from your perspective, tell me how you guys met. Oh, <laughs> which story? <laughs> Brennan tells people a wonderful story about how we met. Um, but we met actually, so we did meet in Florida. That part is true. Um, I was bartending and he was on the 101st skydiving team. And I guess in Brooksville, the little town of Brooksville, um, they do their training there. And the owner of the bar was really enamored with them and brought the guys in and wanted to do like photo shoots and things for the bar with them. Um, so we would have, we had to show up. I was forced to show up to, uh, this airport where they had to take off their 101st uniforms. And that was the first time I ever saw Ranger panties in my entire life. <laughs> and that was hilarious. The first interaction between us was me laughing at him and his Ranger panties. Um, and we kind of just were the last two because I wasn't really thrilled about being there. And he's like, well, I guess you have to take my uniform. And so I took his uniform for photos and then for that week, we were kind of intermingled amongst each other. And then we just started talking, um, which was very unexpected. And it was, we didn't know each other for very long. And then we communicated, we talked on the phone for like six months after that, um, before he, he wanted me to move up, which I thought was crazy. <laughs> All right, well, Brendan, you started for a P, so I just heard a crazy story about how you met. The real one. <laughs> it's going to burst a lot of people's bubbles. <laughs> uh, no, no. Still, like, with that degree, like, it was It's kind of funny how we met and all that. I love our real story. No, he did not crash into the back of my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's hear the other side of the story then. Oh, yeah. No, mine's way better. So we ended up, uh, uh, so I was down in Florida doing our, our midwinter training. Um, so all the, all the skydive teams for all the military, right? Golden Knights, 101st Airborne Division, everyone goes down for a couple months down and, and do some training in Florida. So January to March is like no sports activities. Not a lot of things are kind of going on at that time. So that's the perfect time for us to train. So we were training down in, uh, in, uh, in the Tampa area and everything. And so what I usually end up going with is that we, we blew a lot of, or, or, I mean, we were jumping out on the, the drop zone and we ended up jumping in some high winds. And we did, we did do this often, actually, this, this is a, a part, this is a partial true story. I just like to add a little flair to it at the end. It's Irish. So yeah, <laughs> um, you, you never let the truth get in the way of a good story, James. <laughs> So anyways, we're jumping, we're high winds and me and our team end up, we should not have been jumping. We should have been grounded because when you basically get out, you're, you're just blowing backwards in your parachute. That's, that's not good. Um, but you know, we were getting cocky in our training. We had the hundreds and hundreds of jumps at this time. So we end up jumping out and we get blown off uh, target. We ended up landing uh, a few different pockets in different neighborhoods and all that. And that aspect actually did did happen. And we had to get picked up and, and we were just blown off the drop zone and, and get brought back. So what I end up adding is 
I end up uh, getting blown off course. Next thing you know, I have to land in a neighborhood. And so I'm starting to pick my landing. And sure enough, I see this, uh, you know, this woman in bikini sitting by her pool. And so I end up like, oh, shoot. So I steer my parachute and I try to, to land right down in her yard. And I come I come crashing down in her uh, in her backyard and end up uh, hitting the ground kind of hard. I split my uh, seam and everything in my pants. And then, um, which happens actually often when you kind of land and the way our military pants were just that seam blows out kind of easy. And um, so all, all of this has is, is definitely happened before. And so sure enough, um, I, I, I land, she comes running out. She's like, oh, are you okay? And I'm like, uh, yeah, you know, where, where am I at? And so she ends up, uh, you know, giving me her phone and everything. And then she's kind of like, well, hey, you, you know, you're uh, basically like your legs are kind of, you know, they're blown wide open. And I look down and I'm like, oh, shoot. And she's like, you know, I'm a seamstress. I can sew those up for you. And I'm like, that's perfect. And so we end up exchanging numbers and then uh, I end up taking her out on a date and all that. And that's kind of how we met. And I literally just fell right into her life, right in her backyard. Well, you did. <laughs> None of that is true. <laughs> Well, both That's both great. stories involve basically being in range of penalties for a moment, though. So there we go. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then, so you, when when you guys meet, obviously you've been you know uh, a veteran or going to be in the military for quite a while now. So my first marriage, I wasn't a firefighter, and then my ex actually you know got to see me go into the profession. My second marriage, my wife knew from day one that I was a firefighter. It's so a two different dynamics. So. From your perspective, Nikki, you know, talk to me about the kind of um, the honeymoon years and then, you know, what you started to see through your eyes as far as the ripple effect of service on, you know, a partner in, in a military marriage. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a loaded one. So when we met, um, I think it threw every one of my friends and uh, family members off because Number one, he was military. Apparently, my mom said I said I would never date or marry a military man. I don't remember this. Challenge accepted. <laughs> he was previously married and had a daughter. Um, I was not really a fan of children. So that was another kind of one to throw you for a loop. And then um, it just started. We only knew each other for a short amount of time. And there was just a connection. Um, he was, we were very open and genuine with each other, which was strange because we didn't know each other. And then, um, through phone calls, like I said, a lot of honest conversation. And then he wanted me to move up there, uh, which I thought he was crazy to move in with him after, you know, knowing him for six months, but I did. Um, and, for he was on the skydiving team so it was kind of fun we'd go around to different events um it was like like a little bit of more of a rock star lifestyle there was no deployment actually for i don't know what like five years six years yeah for we met in 2012 and his first deployment was 2016 that i actually had to experience and that was after he went special forces so when i was on the uh, parachute team it was you were non-deployable status when i was on that team so for three years um you know we were just jumping into football games baseball games air shows traveling all across the country in fact also we did reenactment world war ii jumps where we went out to market garden i was out there for uh in the netherlands and we we jumped into all those so it was really cool experience 
Um, but the one uh, you know positive was we were non-deployable status. So all we did when I was on the 101st Parachute Team was represent the 101st Parachute Team and the United States Army through the sport of skydiving. And um, so it was very cool to be able to travel all these venues, air shows, everything. And I would I would take her with me to a lot of the different demos that we would do. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. So probably unlike a lot of military couples, we actually got to date. Um, and experienced life together for a few years. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know, Brent, I don't know how to describe it without maybe him getting offended, but he was very genuine and soft. I was actually probably the one who had the worst um, anger and irritability like problems. It's just can be who I am. He was never, he would never snap or get angry or, or anything. And he was very, um, open with his emotions and conversations and our communication was amazing, which is what like drew me into him. Um, so then what we got married <laughs> while he was going through the Q course, um, for special forces. And then, um, that was at Bragg. And after we got married, let's see, our son, everything was great. I don't think we never really fought or had issues. I mean, maybe once or twice. It started during the Q course, actually, that I remember us really having some issues. Yeah, it was definitely. So after, again, the three years I was on the parachute team, non-deployable status, jumping into to football games, baseball games, air shows. Then at the end, uh, I finally was ready to get back at it. And that's when I wanted to go try out for special forces. So I still had that itch. And after I got off the team, I went and uh, tried out for the Q course and made it and then now that's a that's a that just the tryouts is you know three weeks alone and that just gets your foot in the door and then it's almost a two-year pipeline of intense training that you continue to do as a green beret and that's again going into that non-deployable status so there was probably a portion of time where mm -hmm. you know we continued to date get to know each other actually at that point in time we yeah. we got married but my training probably was getting more and more intense picking up and then he left that, that relaxed state that we were living in definitely he was very relaxed and laid back um he was a skydiver how could he not be even though he was military he was skydiving <laughs> so um the training i mean we call it tryouts but he would come home skinnier than me i mean these are some intense physical mental tryouts you know so he's going through some very stressful changes um, to prepare for this. And it's something that, you know, you had a deep desire to do. There was, there was, there was a point actually where we got Washington state and I cried because that's the other end of where my family lives. And he said to me, if becoming special forces is going to get in the way of our marriage, then I won't do it. And I said, no, you've always wanted to do this since you were a kid. This is your dream. You're not going to not do it. We had we moved to Florida. That's where we got stationed. Um, we had our son, 2016, and he talked me into getting onto the FRG for his company because they just needed somebody before they deployed, and I wouldn't have to do anything. Family readiness group. So yeah. basically, the, the wives kind of support the the unit and kind of keep everyone on track and and up to date with uh, information. So there's only like yeah. a handful of wives that either get selected, get forced to do it, or in the case, she actually volunteered. <laughs> but uh, I mean, a good experience, but also a... So yeah, it's a learning curve, I would have nothing to do um, is what I was told just needed me on there. So 
I don't know if you remember the news around that time, but there were several, there was three guys. Um, so one was Day Allen Carr, one was Boniface, and I hate to say it, but I cannot remember the first guy that was on the team that I got the phone call about. But I would just be walking around with our son and I'd get a phone call from our battalion FRG leader and she would say, you know, did you hear what happened? And I told her, don't ever preface a conversation with that again. So she learned to say, Brendan's okay. This is what happened. And then it would it was that um, a husband was blown up and lost a limb and we had to wait for more details before we would have to go and talk to the spouse. And a lot of times the spouse is being notified at pretty much the same time. They should be notified first, um, generally. She was really good at information. So we were notified right away. Um, and then two other times um, they were killed. One was in action and one was through other reasons that he had died. Um, but it went from our little comfortable world to now I've just had to go to a house of a spouse who is my age with a child, our age, a two-year-old, and have a conversation that her husband is gone. He's he's never coming home. And what can I do to help you? Um, it's kind of I think it's kind of interesting on that because you talk about you know how quickly I had to like mature going from you know high school prom to you know Baghdad. Um, it's kind of interesting because now, she, you know, she had a pretty decent life and, and the military culture at that point in time through the skydiving community was not bad at all. And then thrown right into special forces, family readiness group, you know, leader for the company. And um, and now these are like the handful of cases that are thrown at her immediately. So kind of a, a pretty interesting parallel on my initial culture shock to it and then yours as well. Which as a kid, too, I never saw death. Um, we had we didn't I mean, my bird died or something. You know, we, I never saw any of this stuff un until this moment of living through it. Um, that was the year. Yeah, he deployed. We, we experienced that there was deaths in our family. He came home from deployment. Um, I was probably shaken up trying to keep it together. Having a son and being a mother for the first time. A lot of people think just because you are a mother and your body is made for that, that that's just a normal adjustment. And we also tell ourselves that because it's the same thing. We don't want to feel like a failure by saying this is hard. This has changed my life. I'm mentally struggling. And I was. Um, and then after he came home from deployment, he would go to the bar and drink a lot. And I didn't even pick up on it. I said, well, you know, he needs to unwind. This is what he needs. It was a slow progression. Um, my mom actually was the one who would say, well, he's he's at the bar a lot. And I say, well, he needs this right now, you know. Um, and then we ended up getting pregnant again with our second child, which was hard on me and hard on us. And then that's it all kind of went downhill from there. I do remember one time at the bar looking back now that he had said to me, I was struggling with being pregnant and staying home. And he said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to stop drinking and come home right now? And I didn't realize at that moment that that was a cry for help because it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like he's being there for me. But my husband has never said, what should I do? He is not that type of person. So he was just as lost as I was in that moment. So what about through your eyes, the, the same kind of time period? I think, well, 
it might have slowly been creeping up on Nikki um, with that kind of clarity and that mindset of, of things that were starting to happen to me. I think I was in a lot darker place, so I did not realize these things at all or, or probably gave, you know, a whole lot of uh, look or meaning to any of it. At the time, I was just I was doing me right. And the, and the alcohol helped, you know, because it suppressed a lot of the, uh, you know, recall of memories and, and events and everything that had happened. So um, he was never a big drinker either. Um, I will say that before this. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it all again, going back at this point in time now, we're. Jesus, we're, we're somewhere in my career of like in the year 13, 14, 15 now years of active duty service. I think I had about seven, eight combat deployments at this time. Um, so it's it's starting to creep up. And that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, James, like it no matter how much you try to bury some of those events and, and from deployment one to, you know, deployment seven, you know, there's always some, some crazy, uh, crazy catastrophic stuff that's happening. And, um, I think for us, you know, I don't want to speak for the entire culture, but, um, what seems like for me and most of my buddies is when you kind of have the next mission, what's next for us, like it's easy to keep going, right? Cause you just keep driving forward. You don't have to look behind you. You don't have to think about your, your memories or the, 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 the bad events that kind of happen. What could you have done better and all that? You'll have some AARs and you'll try and clean up your procedures on how you can operate more efficiently, but you don't really take in any of those memories or feelings at that time because you have the next mission and the next mission is all we care about. And so we put all of our focus right back into it and we're ready to go. Right. So that's why guys, um, especially in the special operations community, I feel like can easily operate because if they got that next mission ahead of them, it's so easy for us to compartmentalize and, you know, Hey, we'll, we'll unpack that dramatic event that happened, you know, later on, you know, and, and when I get some time to, to eventually reflect and deal with it, but in our community and over the last two decades of warfare, we've, we've been busy and we've never had time to reflect and, and actually take it in. And so at this point in time, um, it started all that started kind of creeping up to me and, and hitting me, even though I did kind of have another mission next. And some of that was getting into eventually possibly going for Delta as well. All these uh, past events were really starting to kind of creep up into my, my past and, and start to unload a lot of, a lot of things that I was unaware of addressing and dealing with. And, and it was trickling into my lifestyle on a lot of aspects and trickling into her lifestyle and a lot of negative uh, aspects, which I never saw in the beginning, you know, he seemed fine. I, I mean, he had spoken to me about things that bothered him and I knew he lost the best friend, um, but he literally was carrying that and then was trained to, to just muddle through it, to, to take care of it, to throw it on and keep going. So even when I was, it, he had the best training to, be able to suppress and repress that and keep moving forward. And then when I was struggling in the house, he would just throw that on and throw whatever on until finally it's just too much for him. And they, he looks so strong doing it. But when I look back now, I can see that he was struggling. So where was the the kind of darkest place that you found yourself then? I know there was, uh, you know, that infidelity element. And then, you know, I know you found yourself pretty, pretty deep in that hole. 
Yeah. So that's, this is all right where we're at right now. This, this point in time in my life um, with the severe drinking um, led me down some, some really dark rabbit holes. A lot of stuff was starting to get unpacked. The certain crowd of people that I was hanging out with um, at the time um, was not very you know positive or influential. They were all kind of alcoholics as well. I mean, you know, pretty nice people, but, you know, love to drink, love to party, have a good time. And um, no, it eventually, uh led me down to making some some we were yeah led me down making some stupid decisions mine and nikki's relationship at this point in time was very dry and i was miserable because we got i got pregnant again i just got done breastfeeding he just got home and then boom pregnant again very unexpected um it took its toll on me and he was struggling and we did they did offer uh therapy for special forces, you know, have a date night, play connect four. We tried all that. <laughs> Don't drink, communicate. Yeah. It, it, it was just not working. We weren't communicating very well together. She was miserable for, she was not ready for, you know, baby number two. And then it got more complicated with, um, I think she eventually was diagnosed with like prom, right. Premature rupture of membrane for the, the, the baby and all that. So now possibly, uh, they weren't sure, but they were thinking that, you know, obviously the surrounding membrane was you know, pretty weak. So now any, you know, simple falls or anything could, you know, cause premature with the baby and all that. So that intensified her pregnancy. And this is all during a time to which I'm binge drinking, going down some dark paths. We're hardly not talking or communicating with each other at all. Eventually, um, there's just another person that came into my life at that time that I started connecting with, um, through that period and, you know, just started talking to her. And that's eventually what led me down, um, a dumbass road of, you know, infidelity and everything. And to the point where it eventually, you know, it wasn't like it was continuing to go on, but Nikki found out pretty quick, pretty early on as well. And, then the thought of losing her, you know, was definitely not on my, you know, I didn't want to lose her, even though I was making all these bad decisions. And so we were also getting ready to ETS out of seventh group, move to another location, another job, everything, all in the midst of all of this was happening. And um, so, yeah, basically she kind of packed up all the stuff and, and just left. And it, you're sitting there with the entire mess, you know, in your lap, and starting to reflect back on a lot of dumb decisions that you did. And you just, you're one of two things. You're either going to just accept it and, you know, continue to go down dark roads, or you can try and attempt to, you know, chase after her. And and I did, I tried to go after her, try to win her back. Obviously that's uh, very infuriating um, from her standpoint. There are times he stood in the kitchen. He got on every deployment he could with the guard or, and I, I thought he was being selfish. I didn't understand it back then. I was mad. I was working for a, a firearms company and he was supposed to join um, after transition. And so he was never there. He was there for moments in North Carolina, but um, I, he stood in the kitchen once just staring at me and I had to get to work. And I just said, I can't do this right now. And I left. And then so did he. And the cry for help is not easily recognized. I'll say that you're suffering, but you think it's just a bad marriage. You think they're just an asshole and you don't really know that it's PTS until you look back and go, wow, he was he was hurting then. He was struggling then. 
he wanted me, but I couldn't be there for him. Um, and, and all these signs. So either this man that's doing these horrible things to me and, you know, people are like, well, leave him. And, you know, but I knew, I also knew him. So it's, there is this Jekyll and Hyde that's going on and it's, I, I just, I don't know how to tell people to recognize it or what they should even do in that situation because they can't even recognize it for themselves. It took a long time for Brendan to to not get mad at the word PTSD or now PTS and to say, yes, that's what I have. Yeah. At the same point, you know, again, I, I tried to go back after her. Right. But it's not an easier, you know, like, Oh, Hey, everything's good to go now. You know, like, let me win her back. I was like, mad. <laughs> she was still furious. I was still have binge drinking and everything. And that eventually it looked like we were looking at going the routes of getting divorced and separating at a given point in time. And, and right around that time frame is when I went down a, a very dark road of, um, you know, one night just ready to, you know, think about ending my life and everything and, and had the handgun out and, um, you know, was getting ready to, to pull the trigger. Cause it's just easier. Like I'm this big problem, you know, and it, it's, you know, it taking, you know, once if I'm gone, this is going to simplify things for a lot of other people right now. And so that started weighing heavily on my mind that that was the, the easy way out. And, you know, years prior to that, I would be the guy that'd be like, man, these people that think about committing suicide, you know, they're so selfish. And like, how could they think about doing that? And I was always anti-suicide. And here I am one of the damn statistics of almost being that exact guy that was moments from blowing my brains out. And right around that time frame, she, she came in and to which I thought she was gone, you know, out, you know, something, but we were not in a good position and she was pretty much leaving and I somehow know. came back and almost saw what I was doing. And I was three quarters, half out of it, blacked out anyways. And she jumped on me, wrestled the gun out of my hand and I, you know, I mean, it wasn't until like the following morning when I'm a little bit more sober, but, you know, we kind of set out on a, on a clear mission to really start to get the help. And she was a lot more dedicated to saying that she was going to stay with me and, you know, ride this out. And so I didn't have at least the fear of, you know, losing her, losing my kids. And then it was through foundations, you know, different foundations that I eventually, you know, kind of got some help with working with Green Beret Foundation, uh, working with All Secure Foundation. And it was through other um, foundations that slowly got me the help that I needed to kind of get me back into a very good place. And um, so that's uh, kind of kind of interesting on that aspect. Well, I want to kind of hit on a couple of things that you said. Firstly, you just underlined, I would say, one of the least recognized elements of the whole suicide you know, concept. More often than not, most of us, myself included, bought into that. It's selfish. It's cowardly. How could they? Um, you know, And that's what a healthy brain would do observing someone who's in that crisis mode. The problem is there's not the messaging that when people are at that point, and you could argue suicide and homicide, they're kind of almost the same neurological point, that it's not a healthy brain. This brain has been so beaten down and so miswired by that point that you can't look at it with a fresh pair of eyes and try to understand it because it doesn't make any sense. You know, the very nature of your existence, especially when you have young children, as a parent is to make sure that they are fed, they're educated, they're sheltered, and, and they go on to become an adult and then you know, now they go off into the world. So 
when you when you said about the burdensome element, that is a truth that's come out through six and a half years of these interviews. Is that is never ever reported that there is a perfect storm of things. And you talk about childhood tra- you know, trauma and identity and the things that you saw and did wearing the uniform and relationship breakdowns. And what will happen is someone will take their life and go, "Oh no, did you hear though? They were going through a divorce." Yeah, that was one fucking tiny piece of this massive puzzle that was this crisis that they found themselves in. So I think, firstly, that that messaging needs to be the moment that you believe that you're a burden to the very people that love you. That is your fucking red flag to pick up the phone and start asking for help. Not when you're holding the gun, but when you believe that you're a burden. Because there is no better example that we had in Florida a few months ago where we had a young couple that were both police officers. The, the, the boyfriend took his own life. And then I think seven days later, the wife did. They were both, both law enforcement. They had an infant child that they left behind. People are like, oh, how could they? Well, exactly, because you're looking at it with a calm, clear mind. What kind of crisis and what backstory had those two individuals had that their brain had told them that child would be better off without you, without both of you? So firstly, that is, you know, thank you for telling that story because that is something that we need to hear. Stop being so fucking judgmental about suicide and actually realize that this is a mental health crisis that these people are going through. So to talk about, I guess, secondary PTS, which we didn't even know was a thing, there was a moment where going through all of this, I didn't want my kids anymore. I wanted somebody else to just take them. And that's not who I am at all. But like what you're saying, when you're going through that, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your brain. That's I would never, ever, ever, my kids don't need anybody. They need me. But I literally believe they would be better off. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a lot of people say, well, if you're depressed, just get up and exercise. Well, I'm doing it now, but for three years, I didn't care. I didn't care if I woke up and died. Why would I exercise? I don't care to feel better because I don't care about anything. So it's, it's so hard to recognize it or to have them recognize it. I, I kind of had to be Brendan's mirror. Like you said, a healthy brain goes, what the fuck is happening? I looked at him at the table where he's like, I don't know what is wrong with me. He actually said that. And I'm like, looking at him like, this is not the man that I've known for years that he would do anything for me. He was going to give up his childhood dream of special forces for our marriage. And now this is happening. He would have done anything for me, the children. I was looking at him going, something's wrong. There's some darkness that is here. This doesn't make any sense, but he couldn't see it. I think that's one thing that was super successful with All Secure Foundation and a shout out to Tom and yeah. Jen Satterley and their organization um, for doing a lot of stuff with uh, you know post-traumatic stress Right. And, and what's really cool is uh, what they're doing is not only clearly talking about a lot of the signs, symptoms and things that the, you know, the, the primary person, primary PTS and the, the veteran and what he's going through and being able to kind of help assist with spousal uh, tools and, you know, signs and, and things to kind of recognize and deal with. But I love the fact that uh, they're probably, they were one of the only organizations that I, I can recall that was really starting to pioneer away on secondary PTS and secondary PTS that my PTS and my trauma that is 
spilled over into the life of, you know, Nikki, my wife, or my kids, you know, those close proximity of people in that person's lives can develop secondary PTS. And those types of micro traumas definitely exist with them. And it can morph into things like Nikki is just bringing up and, and um, discussing. And so, that organization eventually, you know, which was all after all of this that we just discussed, um, really painted a good light on how to kind of identify it and work through those problems and um, understanding primary PTS, understanding secondary PTS and and how effective and um, that that can really spill into the, the families mm-hmm. and um, but also kind of how to kind of rebound and bounce back from that. And so those types of organizations and foundations is what really got me and Nikki back on track. It's important because I didn't want to admit it either. I'm like, I don't have secondary PTS because that's going to take away from him. And he could be suicidal and angry. I'm not on his level. I don't want to take a light off of him. I'm fine. This is just hard for me. That's what it feels like. And then we actually went to that retreat. It was just last summer, last, what was it, June or July? Mm -hmm. And to be around other people saying, Yes, I have that too. Just the the tribe of of the community, it, it makes you go, okay. Well, if they can admit it, then then maybe it is a real thing, and maybe that is what it is. Because why do I have anxiety? Why am I on edge? Why every time he's going to come home from a deployment, I freak out? I'm happy that he's coming home, but I'm like, is the laundry system good enough? Is this good? You know, there's all those, there's things that didn't exist before those little anxieties and depressions. That what was interesting about that time that we went to the all secure foundation is that we sat down in a room with several other special operations guys and their spouses. And so tons of combat deployments, a lot of experience in the room and the one common denominator is that every one of us is looking at everyone, everybody else, you know, and being like, you're struggling with this too. And, and it's, you start to realize, cause you feel like you're like, man, I'm just the only one. I don't see this happening in anyone else's, you know, families, uh, you know, cause it's sometimes a lot of facade, you know, that we see from our friends and, and everything when we're around them for the good times, but we're not with them every, every second. So what it's like for them back on the home front, we don't know. And you realize the common denominator is that a lot of these same guys are all struggling with the same thing. And so I think it was kind of interesting and cool is at the end of the event with all secure is how we're all like kind of standing up and and we've really emotionally dumped a lot of our, you know, dealings and sufferings with PTS and realizing that we're not alone. You know, everyone else is kind of struggling with this. And so let's kind of learn to struggle with it together as a tribe and to get better. And um, that was what was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Well, I had Tom and Jen on, and I'll look it up in a second so I can tell people what episode it was. But um, Tom was a Delta operator. He was there during Mogadishu. So, you know, a pretty story career. With you aspiring and climbing that ladder, was one of the the reasons that you got buy-in in that particular organization because someone was operating at the highest level and still being vulnerable and courageous with their story? Yeah, when I heard... Um I remember who you did you give me the book? You gave me all secure or where did I can't remember where I got all secure from. Is either you or, or a friend gave it to no, me? Because you had me listen to it. Okay. And I remember it was, uh yeah, I, I ended up getting the book from somebody. And so I read his book and I thought that was incredibly interesting to hear his story and to see how he was 
this guy operating at the highest caliber, you know, and now he was going up in front of Congress and, and preaching to people on the Hill on Capitol Hill. on like how PTS is a, a, a huge um, issue, uh, you know, what's going on and everything. And then, and then him being vulnerable in his book and, his story was similar to mine in a lot of aspects. So I eventually remember reading his book and then I reached out to try and connect with him. And um, actually Nikki set that up and then we plugged in with them and it was, it was awesome. But yeah. Yeah. Spouses. It's easy to say, pick up the phone, right? We don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to go to. Do I go to the command? Do I get him kicked out of his job? Uh, You know, we financially, I know they say, take the kids and run um and tell everyone and you know i didn't want him to lose his job i hate to say that because we need a job right to survive um and there's just this taboo nature about bringing up pts in the community um so what i had done is i sent tom an encrypted email with none of my information and all i said was i think you can help my husband and our marriage. Um, and I just signed it Nikki with no phone number, nothing. And he responded and said, have him call me at this number. And he actually did call him. So they were my guest on episode 516. So I urged people, listen, they were actually going to come to Ocala. One of your fellow Green Berets now works in the a kind of a, an addiction center that the military has a contact with. So I think people that are struggling mentally, they go to this facility here. Um, and he was going to host a, a mental health conference and Tom and Jem were going to speak. And a lot of lip service, I think, was given, as we saw in 7X. And then when it came time to actually step up, the people back in it pulled pulled away. So they never came to this town. It was right at the end of COVID, so it would have been the perfect time. Since then, we've had numerous first responder suicides. And, you know, who knows if they could have been avoided, maybe with something that those guys had spoken about. I want to just talk about one other thing. Um when you said, I, you know, here was a man who was willing to give up his career, his dream of special operations or special forces, excuse me, for our marriage. And then a few years later, it's very different. This is something I talk about mentally and physically. If you look at the draw ground in, in, in a fire academy or a police academy, I would argue you've got some of the most mentally and physically resilient men and women standing on those diamonds. Fast forward 10 years later, you know, there's obesity, there's, you know, alcoholism, there's all these things. Same person, just the job has broken them down. So I think it's an important thing for us to realize is that this job comes at a cost and it can change people. It's not who they really are, but through sleep deprivation and TBIs and all these other things that happen, it changes us. So if you can look back and go, this person wasn't always an asshole, they were loving. That should, you know, that hopefully will give you hope. Now I get it. You're in the middle of that chaos. And it's a very hard, clear perspective to have. But if that person was always an asshole and you married an asshole, you know, then that's a different conversation completely. But if they've changed, I would, I would hope that that would give you hope to get them back to, to a new version of what they were. And so, you know, with uh, Brendan's perspective, if you're surrounded by people going through the same thing, you have no, um, gauge on how you were doing and this happens in the fire service we're all fucking exhausted we're all sleep deprived we're all seeing horrible shit so if i ask my partner hey how are you doing he's like i'm fine how are you doing i'm fine too and you just carry Mm -hmm. on but i ask my wife or my son how am i doing well you seem really on edge you seem angry You, you haven't smiled in days okay now that's my barometer so i think 
you know, firstly, understanding is this person very different from the person I knew five years ago? That's a really important perspective. And secondly, asking people outside of your circle, how am I doing as the responder, as a military member, takes humility, but it's the most important perspective that we can get. I remember you told me once a couple of your friends who knew you for a while said, why are you so angry with me? I'm just talking to you, man. Like you kept responding angry, but you kind of brushed it off. That's the problem sometimes, right? They're like, eh, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the things that, you know, hopefully we can highlight, you know, within this podcast and a lot of things that you're you're doing, James, is, you know, the, yeah, that help is not traditionally being screamed out there. It's not, uh, you know, it's the little subtleties that hopefully, you know, spouses or, or different, you know, people listening in on this that can pick up on these little tactics of when someone starts to go down these these rough roads and, and to not just assume to be like, man, he's turned into a real asshole, like to be like, wait a sec, let's, okay, if this is the new, the so-called new norm for him, like what happened, what changed and look at starting to get some of the help that they need, then go the extreme opposite and like, all right, cut all ties with him, get rid of him. He's just a bad penny in your life right now and and everything so yeah that seems to be a common denominator hopefully that message gets across to 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 more people in the masses to be able to help you know these these types of you know micro traumas and how to identify it address it and then seek the help once it's identified the help is there but who you know i had therapists say well if you mention certain things in the session i'm gonna have to report it well now i don't want to tell you you know, who, where's the safe place that I can go to talk about this? Who will understand? And it's not going to be his chain of command because then he's might get mad at me if, you know, if that interrupts his job. It could be in the future if they change things. But when we were going through it, it was very taboo and he probably wouldn't have been able to go on deployment and then he would have gotten mad. <laughs> um, there, there needs to be a safe place for somebody to go and say, my son, my husband, my dad is struggling. I think it might be PTS. How do we help him without it destroying his identity and, you know, his career, which is their identity? It does become part of who they are. Um, It's not all of who they are, but it's definitely who they are, which is what makes transition really hard. Um, And then outside of that, you know, therapists and, and people don't really understand the military community. So I think what Tom and Jen are trying to institute is within the community, a safe place to go. And that's what it really needs to be. For me, it was, who do I go to? Now that I recognize this and that there is something wrong, who do I call and say, help me? Well, I think that's an important part of the, the, the addiction conversation too. I went to Portugal a few years ago and sat down with a guy who spearheaded decriminalizing addiction, not selling, not smuggling, but addicts addiction. And the moment they removed that fear of arrest, most of the addicts came out the woodwork and sought help because that was the barrier to entry was I am an, I'm an addict, but I have to basically be a criminal while I'm an addict. I have to buy from a seller and, you know, that obviously can lead you to petty, th- uh, petty crime and that kind of thing too. The moment they stopped arresting them and instead, all they educate, they didn't even force them. They educate them on his addiction counseling, mental health counseling, job creation, they revolutionize mental health in that country. And this is what I see in military and first responders. For example, law enforcement, someone says that they need some mental health counseling, well, they lose their badge and their gun for the moment. 
or at least their gun, should I say. Um, what a ridiculous thing, you know? I mean, I get it. it yeah, if yeah. you're saying, I'm going to shoot myself now, yeah, maybe that's the time you remove a weapon. But on a long term, I want to go on a healing journey is not where you remove the very tribe and sense of purpose that person has that might be the last thing that's holding them together. So it's so important to, like you said, create that space. One of my friends, Chris Fields, was... Uh, if you think about the Oklahoma bombing, Oklahoma City bombing, there's an iconic picture of a firefighter holding what it sadly is a dead toddler. And that's Chris Fields. And he went through a horrendous mental health battle, ended up, you know, being unfaithful to his wife, got the mental health counseling. His wife, Cheryl, was phenomenal. And they were able to repair that marriage. And I think there was an, you know, a realization that it was a mental health element. And that wasn't the man that he was, you know, underneath all that. So... Talk to me about what tools you ended up using. And obviously, I'm sure it's an ongoing process, but but how you were able to start repairing the damage within the marriage itself. So the techniques that they um, were kind of using in All Secure Foundation and uh, one of our lead uh, therapists, uh, we still use uh, with them and everything. And she's, she's phenomenal for who we talk to. But one of the techniques was uh, EFTs, uh, like emotional focus therapy. And, um, and so it's, it's pretty interesting on that aspect of she leads basically kind of a, you know, a guided conversation while you're, you're partnered up with your significant other and sometimes guide certain questions and everything, but it's, you know, designed to hit kind of, you know, it's emotionally focused therapy. So it hits key, you know, targets and triggers and all that to kind of start to slowly open up. And, and of course, you know, during that time frame you know, you could continue to keep it repressed and buried and, and, and just kind of be subtle and give a, a vague answer and just leave it at that. But the methodology, sometimes I think the way she sets the room and you kind of develop this space with you and your significant other at that time. And then the questions that she asks kind of allows you to start to open up a little bit and start to talk about it. And at that point in time, depending on what set of questions that she was using, um, it starts to kind of unravel some things and, and in a good way. And then it just allows us to kind of dive maybe deeper into myself or into, into Nikki's uh, place and where she's at um, emotionally and get me an understanding of where she's at and vice versa for her to kind of understand where I'm at because we start to talk about it. And so that's uh EFTs is a really good one methodology that, that she has done. Um, I know some other ones that we've done in the past, which was, uh, well, EMDR. So that was a, a pretty interesting one with um, being able to actually just, again, talk to another, um, you know, uh, professional that kind of starts to ask you specific questions. And it's basically rewiring of the brain and the trauma and basically taking that stored trauma that keeps you anxious and, and always at the forefront of your mind and all that and dwelling upon it and kind of basically reposition it into the brain through a set of procedures, you know, anywhere from like, you know, set, uh, 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 sessions of three to 10 sessions and all that, and kind of just take that trauma and, and just kind of not bury it, but just put it in a place where you don't have to dwell on it as much. Um, so there's there's a lot of different tools and tactics out there. There's the HBOT hyperbaric chamber oxygen therapy that that people have gone through that I've done that uh, has been um, you know helpful in trying to again repair the brain and, and everything. So what else? So here's a big thing, and it's kind of hard to say this, but. Brandon always thought I hated his job. I did not hate his job. I hated what came home after he went to a war zone. 
So for somebody who is in the beginning or middle of this, I they're going to have to get a different type of treatment. Step one for us was get him out of the war zone. Because what happens when you come home and you need electricity? You had to turn the electricity on because you need it. You have to use it. Every time he came home, the part that his PTS is spawning from with the war and everything would come home with him. And I would see after like, you know, getting close to after like two months, right before he would leave again, that he would start calming back down. And the biggest thing was you can't do this anymore if we want to stop this from happening. And I know that's not always the reality for people, especially if they're just starting to go down that path to just quit their job and to not go to a war zone. But I do know that by going back there, it would always respark things. And by not going there, I could see that he has calmed down over time. Um, and then when we went to the retreat, a big thing was community. They have to be around people because we tried other therapists for these guys to open up, they have to be around people who understand them, not just empathetically understand and have understanding and compassion, um, but to actually really understand them through experience. And that was huge for us. There, uh, you know, um, what was Stacy did a meditative therapy session there and had us all take out that part of ourself and um, to really hone in on who that was, that person that Brendan has to use when he's on a deployment and take it out and set it aside of him. And and we went through this and everybody in the room kind of had like a similar scenario where there's this other part of them that is useful and kept them alive, but they don't need it when they're home. They don't need it to be a husband and a father. It's unnecessary. But even us as a spouse, you know, it made us really meditate and recognize what was going on inside of us. That's not useful. I think what was interesting on that aspect too, to caveat on what she mm -hmm. said is that it wasn't like, well, he's no longer needed. Let's destroy that aspect. Yeah of of him or that you know person or, or thing that you know can kind of dwell in us and um no what was really interesting is that they're like no that just you don't need that right now so learning to just that is but that's also still a very big part of who you are and what made you you so don't look at destroying it but just look at utilizing you know him or it a lot less in these set environments um because he's not needed at these point in times and then to try to bring back the the whole person you know and and have have him come out and and suppress the you know not suppress but you know just kind of put him aside for right now and so there these were different techniques that was used that was pretty effective um just like jen said uh i don't need a highly trained killer to do my dishes and do the laundry <laughs> like yeah 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 no but that's that's uh you know it's amazing firstly the emdr i've heard great great thing especially with acute trauma like there's a specific mm -hmm. event that you're able to because I, yes. I believe it stays in the short-term memory and it's stuck there and what it's doing is moving it to long-term memory um, and i was very very lucky from again pure happenstance whatever happened in my life's journey i was always able to process that to the point where i was writing the book i was like oh yeah that happened. I'd even forgotten about it. So, you know, very, very fortunate versus some of these people that are struck by these, you know, triggers and, you know, these flashbacks and those kind of things. Um, and, uh, got it. There was another thing I was going to just talk about. Oh, that's right. And then with the hypervigilance, like you said, it's not that you don't need that anymore, but 
it's that sympathetic and parasympathetic. You might need to be a very dangerous human being if someone tries to rob you or, you know, whatever, and you're going to flick right back into that. Or if I happen to drive past a car that's just crashed, then I'm going to go right into medic mode again. But you don't need to be checking exits and under tables when you're in the restaurant. But I mean, there's a middle ground, though. I mean, do you want to know where your exits are and just be looking at people when they walk through a door? Absolutely. You never know who might. But by down-regulating that and putting it, you know, getting closer to that yin-yang again that we talked about earlier versus being this kind of white circle that's just, you know, purely in survival mode, I think Jen's analogy is perfect. I don't need a trained killer to do my dishes. I love that. I think she said soldier. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, either way, you might be a hitman. Same thing. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, then you mentioned transition. I want to kind of walk out out the back end of the actual career itself, and then we'll get into transcend. As you touched on, the the transition can be very, very hard for you know all kinds of people, but especially in uniform. You know, you had this purpose, you had this tribe. Um, you know, you you had that was your everything at that point, and that that identity, especially. And now you transition out. Now I know you went to contracting initially. So talk to me about your transition from the regular military. Uh, was was contracting still kind of hanging on to that a little bit? And then how was the ultimate transition where you weren't, you know, actually deploying anymore? Yeah, the uh, I mean, the full on ETS when I was right at my 15 year mark, left out of seven special forces group. Um, I enrolled my time straight over to the national guard with 20 of special forces group. So I kept my time going for sure. Um, but when you're going to national guard status, it's very few and far between when you actually need to, you know, kind of show up and participate um, and be a full on green beret. So it does give, afford you the time to, you know, have a, a big civilian job and civilian life outside of that. Um, but that was that time frame of that transition was everything. We just unpacked of that perfect storm happening during that time of, of mine and Nikki's, um about the heavy drinking and all of that um so that's right on par with unfortunately i hate to say there's probably about a 90 percentile of service members from who i've talked to and stats that i've seen online that struggle with ets the transitioning of going from military to civilian lifestyle um so mine was right up in there in the whole whirlwind of all of that. That was uh, <laughs> terrible for me on a lot of levels. They make sure your finances are good and that you got a job lined up. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in there, they have resume uh, writing and, and to which I did. And and then once I kicked my resume off to like three different entities, they were like, who taught you how to write a resume? This is terrible. <laughs> You're just like, military, I guess. I don't know. Um, no. Yeah. So it, the transition period is it's not the greatest it, and a lot of people know that it needs to get better on the military as a whole um but no i i rolled straight into contracting so we were starting to get into a, a better place with me and nikki and then when i started contracting for a particular entity um the deployments were a lot shorter so at this point in time now me and nikki have been together almost you know eight to nine years and she's very familiar with me deploying. So that wasn't the issue. And in fact, you know, if I recall, deploying for her, for me to do it was never that hard for her per se. It was just always hard on the kids because they're not, you know, they're of age. They don't, you know, understand fully of why is daddy gone for a period of time. But when I was contracting, they were 60 days on, 60 days off. So 
in retrospect, it actually wasn't that bad. It was a pretty nice gig, um, you know, because 60 days one would go pretty quick compared to what she was and the kids were used to in the past. So that would time would fly. And then that 60 days I'd be back home was a solid 60 days of getting a lot of time with them and, and you know, kind of getting, you know, having fun and being a lot more dad-like um, when I was back home before I would rip back out on another, you know, contract of another 60 days. So I did that for another, you know, four years pretty much until we, you know, closed down Afghanistan and basically, you know, Afghanistan closed down and some of the other contracts across the country started closing down. So as an independent contractor, you weren't needed anymore. And so I basically got cut loose of, of that um, particular entity. And then I was, you know, so-called jobless for a little bit, but that's when I actually came across, um, you know, transcend and everything and, and, started uh well going down that route of what that kind of looked like um there was another aspect to your question somewhere in there i think i'm forgetting to hit something um well not really it just it was the contracting again filling that void for a moment and also you know now you get told you cannot contract anymore we're out of afghanistan was that jarring to you because then that was taken away from your actual your personal decision to stop yeah it well yeah <laughs> so it was again, yeah, it was another void that was filled. It was also something that I was super familiar with, right? And I was I was more comfortable being, you know, overseas in deployed, chaotic, you know, combat scenarios than I probably was at my own house, you know, raising my kids in the backyard, right? Like there was a certain level of comfort and familiarity that I had with that other aspect of me um in my life that that to me was you know, almost calming. And, and I knew that really well. And, and the other area was kind of foreign. So doing the contracting, that aspect was very familiar to me. But on the flip side, when I would return back home, I would try and do my best to then jump into dad role and try and be the best, you know, dad and parent to them at, at that particular time. Um, but no, it was a pretty uh it was a pretty good gig and the money was you know contracting money was was really good at the time as well and um but it was in hindsight again i was kind of upset that the contract was cut and then i was let go of course uh, quite a few of us were um but you know hindsight looking back at it now that eventually morphed me into launching where i'm at now and everything and and was definitely the best decision and or accidental thing whatever happened well, I know Transcend is a big part of 7X, so I want to get to to that in a moment. But talk to me about Transcend, you know, what the company is, you know, what what you guys offer, and then talk to me then about the the foundation that you're spearheading. Yeah, so when I was jobless at this at this time, uh, my old high school buddy of mine, I actually ran into him in the gym, and that's where me and my buddy Jesse, uh, who was co-founder of Transcend as well was um talking to me about his company that you know he had just kind of started up and everything so it was pretty interesting and so he's telling me about transcend and and you know being a, a health and fitness guy like i've been following and knew about peptides and you know a little bit of hormone replacement therapies and, and different types of health and wellness um you know optimization modes that you can do so uh so we kind of hit it off again i hadn't seen him in 20 years we grabbed a couple lunches and kind of re-sparked our friendship and then he was like hey you need to meet my boss ernie he's a veteran and um 
you're like, you guys, you guys would probably hit it off. Right. So, and at this time too, Jesse's probably thinking like, you know, Hey, my, my buddy doesn't have a job now and everything I've talked to him about. He knew a little bit of what I did in the mill, but not really a whole lot. I didn't like go into any of my background with him that much, but he was like, Hey, come meet um, my boss, Ernie. So sure enough, it was like, I think a 30 minute meeting that I had scheduled to meet with Ernie. And I went to his office and I I probably was with him for about three, four hours. Like we just, we hit it off. We were just, you know, reconnecting, sharing old war stories as a bunch of, you know, veterans, you know, generally do. And um, we we definitely came to the same conclusion of the problem of like mental health, Um, you know, PTS, uh, suicide is still a massive problem. And the VA healthcare, they do, they try to do the best they can, but it's a, it's also a huge issue and, and everything. So he got some help through other foundations and other modalities, uh, the same with me. And we kind of shared that story on the, the different foundations that helped me and helped him. And so we kind of almost to raw form developed the rough model of what the transcend foundation would eventually morph into was through that meet. And, um, so that's eventually how the transcend foundation was sparked was basically kind of through that meeting, but to back up and talk about Transcend Company, the for-profit side, um, it's only been around for about two and a half, three years now. And they're a basically a telehealth and wellness optimization company with core values following closely with, you know, kind of preventative medicine, you know, and getting in lines with precision medicine. So there's some really cool, interesting aspects that Transcend Company is doing. And it was Ernie and a couple of Jesse and, and two other guys that started it out of a basement a few years ago. And their first you know, track was to hit, you know, a million in sales. I think they hit 4 million. And then the second year was upwards to, to 20 mil. So, I mean, and then now we're into kind of like year three and it's, it's doing really well. Um, they launched during the COVID timeframe. A lot of companies were failing during the COVID timeframe. So it was interesting to see that during COVID people are becoming a little bit more subconscious and, and aware of their health and taking their health into their own hands. So that's probably what's really started actually helping and launching their company do successful was, People, you know, one, didn't want to get sick and COVID was this big thing, but uh, two, it was so convenient to be able to just kind of through telehealth, talk to your physician online, have your medications, your blood work all read pretty much online, delivered right to your door. I mean, it was very simplified process, especially during the COVID timeframe, but we started becoming successful in a market of really, you know, fine-tuned athletes in the bodybuilding world, right? People that are already super in tune with their body, they want the latest edge that they can get again. So they're going to dial in their hormones and everything. Um, That market we've really broke into with, you know, obstacle course racing, CrossFitters, the bodybuilding community, we've done really well. But the end statement, I think that we really want to address and talk about is that this, this is for everyone. Anyone can dial in their hormones and their health. This is meant for anyone. You're just, you know, into your forties, fifties, sixties, you know, taking your, your life and your health back in your own hands and dial in your hormones that might've been thrown out of whack for years. is just the broad stroke baseline stuff that we do and just do blood work and start to dial in your hormones and make sure everything's balanced and get back to homeostasis. And that's what transcend company does. That takes me to the foundation. The foundation piggybacks off everything that Transcend Company is doing on the for-profit side, except we aim for veterans and first responders 
who are struggling and in critical and declined states of health um, to basically kind of help them at no cost to them. And that's where the foundation comes in to be able to give back, to balance them back out uh, hormonally, to address uh, PTS, TBI issues. And that's kind of the rise of where Transcend Foundation currently is, which is um, it's brand new. We're only a couple months old. Beautiful. Well, we talked on the bus. I think it was in England, wasn't it? We were on the bus and we chatted for a while. Um, I have been, you know, I think TRT absolutely has a place, but what I've seen with my own eyes um, is that there's also a predatory element to these men's clinics that are opening up all over the place and, you know, drawing bloods. Oh, yeah, I've got the perfect, you know, pill for a nail for you. Um, I think that there's there's absolutely a need for it. There's, as you said, the TBI, there's a lot of people that just cannot regulate their own hormones because of, you know, anatomical damage. There's sadly a lot of people in my profession that unless we change the work week, there's only so much they can do holistically. And maybe, I say maybe, I've got many, many friends who are on it that are having benefits from it. My goal is to fix the work week so not they don't need to go to that as young as they are at the moment. But talk to me about that. We had a discussion prior Talk about the the kind of advice and the counseling you give on nutrition and exercise and sleep prior to there ever being a TRT conversation. All right. So first and foremost, yeah, like I'm not a doctor, you know, physician, licensed dietitian, anything like that. So, um, you know, any advice that I'm usually giving, which is also on the foundation side, um, you know, goes from my general core values and mindset of a addressing any of these issues from a holistic health standpoint, right? So holistic health, we, we look at all aspects, you know, from physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, um, social, all of that we, we look at addressing because your, your body is one interconnected system. And so we, we look to identify and address like the root cause of the problems and not just, not just symptom based. Right. And so, the first thing that we do, and there's a lot of people, and especially when you get into athletes that are really dialed in, um, that were probably living off of the bro science of, you know, doing the steroids, underground steroids and, and different types of supplements and everything that it doesn't matter what some patient comes to us and says that they want. The first thing that we're going to do is run an in-depth lab panel on that particular person and and find out where they're currently at. And then off of that is where we're going to decide what best protocols are to go. So there's a, there's quite a few people that are probably immediately just like, yeah, let me get on some, some good juice, you know, some, some, some good TRT and everything. But if your labs aren't indicating that, and it looks like your charts are converting and you're in a pretty decent area, but there's other aspects of your life that are suboptimal. Like those are the areas that our wellness specialists are going to kind of identify and address with that particular patient. So going off the labs is, is a big thing of what's going on with that person. Cause at the end of the day, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So they're going to identify that with them, address up the things that are suboptimal. And then at that point in time, they're also working with the patient on their lifestyle goals, what's currently going on with them and then addressing like, okay, where would you want to go from here? And, and how can we get you, you know, so-called from point A to point B. So that is a pretty in-depth, thorough conversation that one of our, you know, wellness specialists typically would go over with our patient. And a lot of times, um, again, most of our wellness specialists are coming from background of, you know, ex, you know, fitness, uh, you know, crossfitters and, and, you know, or health professionals and all that nurses, everything. So they're, they're, and now their new passion is just kind of in the health and wellness space and, and whatnot. But 
more often than not, I hear every one of them start to go down certain uh, avenues of addressing like, okay, holistic health, how are you doing on sleeping and how are you doing uh, eating? Where is your alcohol consumption? And start to address a lot of things that like might not really have any benefit to our company for profiting per se, but they're genuinely that so much caring about that patient so much that they'll address a lot of these areas in the patient's life to be able to clean those things up before even a patient just jumps on a, on any of our particular products. But then from there, that's when we identify and address those issues going on with them, where they're suboptimal and get them back to baseline, back to homeostasis first. And that's kind of what we do. The labs are all reviewed by a doctor, board certified doctor. So do mention that. (laughs) Yep. So there's several tiers, Uh, you know, the wellness specialist is discussing and going over these things, but every uh, patient eventually sees our doctors. Um, We're licensed and prescribed in all 50 states. Uh, You know, a lot of uh, FDA approved medications and everything, but it's a, um, yeah, you see a doctor with the final outcome. They're talking to you about the health and wellness plan that the wellness specialist and you kind of agreed upon. So they're looking at it, um, from their set of, uh, eyes and everything and making sure it's in a blessed off good trajectory. And then back down to the wellness specialist, well, they'll continue to dial in with this patient over typically three to five months, mostly four months long in a, in a set of so-called protocols or a plan of action of what we're looking at doing to optimize that person's health. Beautiful. Because I think it's important to find, you know, if that's the route that people are going to take ultimately, you know, peptides, TRT, whatever it is, that there's, you know, a trusted brand. And I think that was what was what I saw. I mean, Bryce was talking about the progress he had in his knee with with some of the peptides that you sent him. Um, and then the fact that you were backing 7X, I mean, that speaks a lot about that altruistic side along with the foundation. So I'm excited to learn more about it. And we're going to do another episode with you and Ernie um, coming soon. So people are really going to be able to dive into that a lot more. While we're on this wellness thing, uh, wellness subject, excuse me, Nikki, you were talking again about the kind of... Uh, um, observational study that you're doing within yourself as far as using some of the old school bro science and then contrasting it with some of the new science that you've been exposed to? Yeah, so I'm also not a doctor, but getting my health certificate. So what I've decided to do since I've been in nutrition myself for since 2012, but I'm going to get into a bikini competition I'm on path right now with a coach and put myself into how it's done, um, what what it is that they eat, what the workouts are, and then analyze that information and see and optimize it and see, are, are people doing this in a healthy way? I understand that to do a competition, it's not a sustainable body when you do a competition body to, to live in that, to constant state there's a lot of bodybuilders who recompete and they end up having heart attacks a lot of the men because there's just too much muscle mass to be carrying um and then a lot of the women can be in a state of dehydration and things like that so i'm just putting myself through the process right now to analyze it just to see if there is a better way that we can do this if there's a better way to have our bodies um you know, be peak in, in muscle and definition and fat loss, but in the most healthy way that we could possibly do that. So it's interesting because I've had this performance versus wellness conversation a lot of times with coaches and athletes. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of times when you reach a high level of performance that your wellness suffers, that you pay the price. And I think the strongman world is a perfect example of that. Eddie Hall you know, spent 
you know, years now trying to reclaim his health after almost killing himself, being the world's strongest man. Um, and then you look at the bodybuilding world. You know, there arguably are, are so many great things about weight training, but you could also argue with the mental health element how much body dysmorphia is going on that you feel you need to be this, you know, exterior armored human being. Like I would, I'd love to kind of climb inside the minds of some of the the most successful bodybuilders and see what their backstory was. Because as you pointed to, you've got the natural bodybuilding, which I would say was probably a lot healthier. But some of the extremes that these, not only bodybuilders, but the professional wrestlers too, get to the point. I mean, was was that worth it to die at 45 years old, 50 years old? So I think, you know, having that more holistic path to still being muscular and strong and, and, and able, but without being a detriment to your own longevity, I think is a very important conversation. Oh, yeah. There was an interesting uh, and Generation Iron, I believe uh, there was a stat on there that was basically like if you knew you could achieve the crown of uh, Mr. Olympia, Olympia, you know, within the next year or two, but you knew you would die five years later, would you do it? And majority of like the people said yes. And so you're just like, wait, what? You know, like you actually think about that. And it's uh that has that was super super interesting to kind of to hear that and that's probably something else that we should look at unpacking from a health and wellness standpoint for sure um and maybe looking into the bodybuilding community and addressing those those things because that shouldn't be the case right um but it is interesting to hear that stat and on a on a second note um you know, seven-time uh, Mr. Olympia, Phil Heath, um, who's also one of our representatives at the company with Transcend, has got some great insight and great stories on onto that. And also to recently talking about some of the mental health aspects of what that endured for him and everything. And some of it was, was closed off, but it was really cool. He's got some powerful messages and all that. So I, I think that would be interesting to see what we could possibly set up with getting uh, maybe Phil Heath and you connected at some point, if that's possible. Um, He's got a pretty busy schedule, but uh, that would be a, a very, he is, he's very in tuned and in line with um, the health and fitness industry and doing it in the proper measures. Cause he can reflect back on his old days on how he did a lot of bro science and it wasn't the proper ones to eventually finding transcend partnering with us and truly believing in what we're doing now as it spearheads and leads, you know, and hopefully pioneers the industry of, of bodybuilding, but then also just general health and wellness into the future. Um, so that would be, that'd be pretty interesting to be able to unpack. I think he actually spoke out not too long ago on his Instagram about he has body dysmorphia. And a lot of people said to him, I never would have guessed that, that, and, and that makes me like you, that you came out and said that. Yeah, well, we need, I mean, that cor- courageous transparency is what this whole conversation has been about. And I think that's the thing. Phil Heath is the Delta operator of the bodybuilding world. Oh, absolutely. And he's uh, he's also one of our board members for the Transcend Foundation. He's super pro-military, pro-first responder and loves helping and giving back in any way. So yeah, I'd love to, to collaborate and do something with uh, him and you, James. Absolutely. I would love that. Well, the very last thing, because we've been talking over two hours now, but uh, I want to make sure that we cover this as well. We all shared an, a flying tube for 10 days. So talk to me about how you came across 7X and then what your experience was on the journey itself. And then interestingly, when you came back. 
Yeah. So I heard about 7X uh, when I was listening to actually a Ben Greenfield podcast and I heard Ryan Parrott um, was one of basically the next guests, right? And I was crushing and listening to a lot of his podcasts. So I heard Ryan's story and um, it really resonated with me. And what was interesting is now he is kind of gone through it and lived the whole uh, you know process of starting up a few different nonprofits, foundations, um, very well, has struggled with uh, suicide across the board to also losing his best friend and sniper partner um, to really trying to stand up and do something about it. And this is literally as I am launching and starting to get into my foundation with Transcend. And and what we would like to do with the Transcend model was similar to a little bit of what he was doing and, and what he had done. So, um, so his message really spoke with me on that particular podcast. So I reached out to Ryan, um, tracked down his number, email. He, he eventually got back with me within, I think, a day or two. And, um, you know, me and him just plugged in immediately got together uh you know and everything that he was explaining to me again was right on par with what we want to do with transcend foundation and kind of take it um so it was super cool that's how i plugged in with ryan got got initially on the 7x project um but the biggest thing that i really liked was not so much of the epic you know seven continents in seven days and you know seven skydives which uh you know was a big selling point for me because i love to skydive and so um i like tackling uh those those types of endeavors and everything so that was pretty cool but what really stuck out to me the most was quantifying the data all right what can we do with this data how can we reduce reduce mental health illnesses, veteran suicides by wearables, by diving into the blood work, into the labs and by proper nutrition and eating like, and to develop this project where we have pre, during and post, you know, phases of these athletes kind of building them up then deploying and breaking their bodies down like what most of us do on either deployments or just you know again rough bouts of just back to back weeks on end of you know fires anything like that and then recovery what does that look like how can we get these guys back to homeostasis back to baseline after they've kind of been through the ringer and so that was what really drew me to the project initially was the uh being able to quantify this data calculate it and how can we produce it into a manual to to give to future generations to come Nikki, your experience. So I've never experienced anything like this before because I never even traveled. Um, uh, yeah, oh, so you went big when you, when you jumped on then. I, I did. And, you know, I wasn't an athlete aside from the fact that I went from maybe running a mile once a year to several times to support Katie because she's just amazing. Um, it was really inspiring to be around people who, you know, were just killing it in their industry um these these athletes were incredible but at the end of the day we were all just people stuck on a plane or stuck on a bus or traveling to our next destination and as cool as it was to be in all these different places and you know you're just going through it you're kind of mucking through it stuck with people and then you come home and you realize how connected you actually are to these people once you get back home and how much you actually miss them <laughs> even after you know a five-minute conversation and there were a lot of parallels for me, actually, that made me understand Brendan in a microscopic way on an experience level. So there'd be times where we'd get to a hotel and I'd be like, I get it. I get it when you would say, I have to hit the ground running. You know, I got 15 minutes to shower and I'm just thinking about all the times he had 15 minutes. He's in and out. And then, you know, you're carrying stuff in your pack 
And that's what you have for the day. And one time when our bus broke down, I forgot my snacks <laughs> because of just the transition of all the back, uh, the bags and luggage. And that was the time I needed them. And I'm like, I get it. That one time why you're so frustrated when you forgot what you had or um, trying to come home and digest all of that information. There was a time, and I know it sounds silly, but I was standing in the grocery store and I like got a little choked up and I'm looking around like, these people are just people. They have no idea what I just experienced. I, the most incredible thing. And it actually made me feel really lonely. And I came home and I told Brendan and I said, I kind of got a glimpse into what you feel like when you come home from a deployment. And it's weird. Like I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just shopping and it just smacked me in the face. And then I wish I could have had those experiences a long time ago to understand him through experience better. It would have really changed a lot i think um <laughs> yeah well that, i mean i'm so glad that you said that because i've pulled so many parallels as well and like you said the microcosm that's exactly what it was it was a little petri dish that represents police fire military and yeah i did that little talk in I think it was cartagena saying hey Brace yourselves for when we get back because it's going to be like transitioning out of our profession. You're going to have this amazing sense of purpose and this tribe. And, you know, I talked about this before on, on the podcast. If you take a bunch of people and you isolate them in one single spot and you add a bunch of copious amounts of pressure, that's reality television. Then you get your popcorn, and you watch them tear each other apart. But you get that same group of people that has purpose and, you know, and are from these amazing backgrounds and they're all high performers. And they understand the why, and you add that pressure, now they start becoming a diamond. You know what I mean? They come together and they rise up together. So then when you transition out, after that very short time that we had, there's a sense of loss. There's a sense, you know, you had an identity for those those week and a half. You had purpose, you had tribe, and now it's gone again. And I know exactly what you mean. Like you're walking around and like, whether it's you have no idea I was just in Baghdad or you have no idea that I just fought the Grenfell fire in London or the Vegas shooting or that I was on a, a plane with a bunch of special operations people and high level athletes and I jumped out of a Russian helicopter and landed by the pyramids. You have no idea. <laughs> but it was that's there were so many parallels, the sleep deprivation, the stress, the tribe, the you know, all those things. So I'm so excited because I think we... We did exactly what we set out to do. And I had someone recently reach out through social media questioning our claims of doing 777. It was like, dude, it wasn't about that. It was never about that. It was about recreating what we do in uniform and then trying to, as you said, talk about the reboot. And we, I don't think we could have recreated it more perfectly in all these different areas. So I was, uh, yeah, I was blown away how there was that sense of loss all over again, just like, well, I didn't even get my sense of loss so much when I left the fire service. Mine was when I left my favorite department, which was only four and a half years into my career. But that was my dream crew, and I literally sobbed all the way home. So it was an interesting parallel, again, like you're talking about, like no one knows what we just did, but they will because there's going to be a book and there's going to be a docuseries. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I look forward to that. Um, a secondary thing that I definitely took away from that trip, right? What did I learn from it? Um, we, we were going a hundred miles an hour 
you know, and everything we did, it was rushed, you know, through airports, through, through events, get this done, get back on the bus, go here, go there, right. Get back on the plane, fly to another continent. And, um, so hundred miles an hour. Right. And, um, which is on par for kind of what my life's been for a huge chunk of my career. And, um, so that, that was normal to me, actually. I think what was very interesting on my aspect was taking the time to actually slow things down in my life, even during those times that we were going hundred miles an hour, but taking those small micro, you know, seconds and, and, and having conversations and getting into, um, you know, sharing kind of deep thoughts and, Hey, how did you come about this journey and, and meeting new people and hearing their stories on why they're on this trip and what are they trying to accomplish? And it allowed me to kind of really slow myself down in life and to really appreciate those small connections that I would meet with, you know, different people in different locations and share, um, you know, similar to drastically different experiences with them, you know, and, and which I think in turn helps uh, build up that community and that tribe. And, um, but it was, it allowed me to slow things down and to appreciate those small conversations and, um, and just talking with people and getting that, that feeling of connection and everything with, with somebody else. Cause I'm just so used to going, going, going that I never really do take that time to kind of stop and, uh, and appreciate certain, uh, you know, people, conversations, uh, sceneries at some point. And, um, and so I kind of tried to capitalize on that, on this trip. And it was incredible for me. And I really, uh, glad I kind of did that on that aspect. Well, I think the other thing for me coming from the fire service is I think London was my worst day as far as sleep deprivation. And it was just so, I mean, scary really, because I really worked hard at bolstering my wellness before we left so i was well slept i gated off alcohol did all the right things so that i'm like, all right let's just let's make a real baseline so that i can really study myself over the next seven to ten days and i watched emotions become frayed i watched people be able to forget what they were doing you know just you could see physically i've got so many videos of um you know little kind of commentaries that i did and by the time i got to london i looked like i'm you know 10 years older but this, and I, I kind of had a realization, like, my God, this is this is the state that I existed at for 14 years, and this was my normal. But now I know what real normal feels like. That's so far from it. So, because I think we averaged about four hours sleep a night, not good quality sleep either. So that pretty much mirrors a first responder's life, you know, especially one yeah. with it with it, with children at home that maybe they're young and they're waking them up as well. So it was a really terrifying underlining of something that i've talked about solidly since i started this podcast but sleep deprivation is so cancerous so toxic mentally emotionally physically so i'm looking forward to really kind of unpacking that in the in the book and the film as well awesome no yeah i look forward to that brilliant all right well then to wrap up i'm sure people would love to learn more like i said we'll do a separate um episode on transcend um but if they want to learn more about that company they want to reach out to you guys on social media where are the best places online so right now for transcend company you go to www.transcendcompany.com or sometimes uh, transcend hrt 
com comes up both takes you to the same website uh, i'd love to be able to give you you know a url link for our foundation page it's currently being built out as we speak for the transcend foundation page so i don't have like a url link that i would love to just say hey go go to this check us out on the foundation uh, that's currently being built out which i hope will be up within the next 30 days but um for information on yeah transcend or transcend uh, foundation um that's the best place to go is uh, transcendcompany.com and then what about you guys individually, social media? Uh, I'm on, Instagram? yeah, for Instagram, uh, you know, quiz720x uh, is uh, is my handle. Uh, since I learned that when somebody was like, hey, what's your handle? I'm like, what are you asking me? Are you talking? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Uh, so I learned that on the trip as well. So yeah, no, quiz720x is, is my Instagram or uh, just Brendan Quisenberry is my Facebook I think mine's Nikki, N-I-K-K-I, Mix, M-I-C-S for Instagram. Beautiful. Yeah, I had to learn all the jargon. Like, what's your handle? Yeah. It's like, are, you, yeah. are you talking about my penis right now? No, you're... Yeah. Oh, okay, my bad. <laughs> What'd you say to me? <laughs> all right, well, I want to thank you so much. Like, I preface this a lot of times when we have, you know, a, a vulnerable conversation like this. I understand that this comes at a cost. You kind of pull in the the scab off the wound a little bit, you know, in in many areas. But there is so much value to storytelling. The beautiful thing about this is obviously now this will be out there for anyone to access on on planet Earth, literally. But you can do PowerPoints on military marriages or mental health, and they just don't resonate with people. But a story like the one you've told today, both of you, I think is so powerful and it's going to resonate with so many people. So I just want to thank you both for not only being generous with your time, almost two and a half hours today, but also having the courageous vulnerability to actually put your story out there for people to learn from. James, yeah, I, I want to say again, uh, a pleasure being here. Thanks for having us on it. And I'll just throw something back at you. I appreciate what you're doing with Behind the Shield podcast. And, the, you know, you're rocking and rolling. I think you just hit your 50,000, you know, mark and everything. And, and uh, I mean, you're 700 and almost 50, I don't know, podcasts. So you're clearly crushing it. You're doing good things. Um, you're making a difference out there and everything. And and so I was just, uh, you know, glad to be a, a, just a splash in the pond of, of some of the impact that you're doing, James. Yeah, thanks for being easy to talk to. This is my first podcast. <laughs> I think it's a British accent. Yeah, that's what it's that's... Probably. <laughs> Who doesn't love a good British accent? <laughs>